This is Radio Influence. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders on Radio Influence. I went on Twitter. I said, who do you want to hear on the MMA Insiders podcast? And several people told me they wanted to hear from the guy that, when it comes to Russian MMA, he is the guy to go to. Kareem Zidane, you read his stuff, bloodyelbow.com. I've known Kareem well before his time at bloodyelbow.com. So we're going to talk about the Russian MMA scene. We're going to talk about conflicts of interest in MMA and that since both of us are MMA reporters, we're going to talk about our experiences in the industry, the good and the bad. So we're going to get all that on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast right here on RadioInfluence.com. But first up, I'll let you know about my sponsor, Fight TV. Fight TV is a go-to app for MMA fans and practitioners, live pay-per-views and TV tapings, full-length matches and interviews, movies and documentaries. Watch MMA wrestling and boxing live on the screen of your choice phone tablet or tv using just the fight app download fight free today by going to fight fite.tv forward slash radio influence once again that's fight fite.tv forward slash radio influence forward slash that link is available on radio influence.com kareem I, I appreciate time we have known each other for several years back when you had your own website now doing doing a lot of big things i mean how many websites are you writing for now Oh man, Jason. And first of all, like, thank you for having me on. I've been a long time listener of this show. And like you said, we've known each other for a long time. It's great to be able to talk to each other again on this uh, new platform here. And I, I mean, I write for, I'd say like five different websites now, including the one I own in the moment, Sports Politica. So I'm all over the place really, but my main hub and my main home is still Bloody Elbow. .com. You can still find the majority of my content there. But yeah, I'm all over the place, Jason. I can tell you there's more outlets coming in the next couple of months, too. Yeah, one of the things that I, I love about the, the way you're reporting on the sport, and, and it's something that I guess I always always you know tend to read people like you and other people because you, you carved your own niche. And for you, the niche was Russian MMA. When, when I got an MMA at that time, back in 2009, I, I realized no one was going Bellator, so I went into Bellator. And now, you know, pretty much just doing the podcasting, regional scene also still you know paying attention to what's going on with bellator but that's because it's one i get i don't know if you're like me but i get a lot of you know people who want to get in the mma meeting and are like you know what should i do how, how do i you know get a footprint in there and i'm like be be unique and and, and with you with your role bloody elbow i mean i know you've got a lot of people who are, who are trying to you know end up writing for that website and to me that you know that's the best advice to give anybody is find a niche that no one else is doing and you know what's really interesting about what you said there, Jason, is that I do get a lot of those emails from people asking me, well, Kadeem, how's I, I see that you've done this for yourself and this. I'd like to ask you, how do we get into the business and how do I really make this a, a living? Well, as soon as I list how just what you have to do and just how hard you have to work in the sense that you have to carve out your own space in the industry, something that's yours and something and a way to brand yourself. And then then you have to work on your writing and all sorts of improvements. Sometimes, Jason, I don't even get a response to that email, not even a thank you, nothing. I don't know if you've been through the same thing, but it's actually really bizarre how many times I've written really long, detailed, like essay length emails in response and gotten nothing back. It's almost like you scare the person off once they realize what it, what's really coming down to. I think, I think a lot of people just want to get into this 
as sort of a hobby on the side. They already have a job that they're doing to get into this because they love the sport and they want to add their opinion in, in one way, shape or form. But the problem is you end up with a lot of people doing the exact same thing. And I'll be very honest, if it's something, if I'm looking for analysis from the sport, there are two or three top class, like truly mm -hmm. the elite. And it depends on your style and your preference and who you like listening to. You'll pick one of those. Everybody else is just playing second fiddle at this point. They're not going to like carve out that space. So why waste your time doing that unless it's, again, something that you're doing as a hobby? But you're just like like filling up the market with unnecessary content at that point, really. Why not find the things that people aren't covering in general and find a way to make that interesting to them? Because that's the key right there. I could write about all sorts of things, but unless I tell, I give people a reason to care, which it takes a long time to build that sort of uh, uh, that sort of repertoire with people in general. To to get people to really care about something takes time. So I can understand when people are either intimidated by going forward or trying to pursue a, a, a career in, in journalism, particularly in the MMA industry, which is again very volatile, still very young. And I mean, really, there's only a handful of people that are flourishing in the sense that I'm uh, like financially safe and doing this as a full time gig. Yeah, it's it's a very limited amount of people. I mean, I usually get a lot of questions just because of of uh, you know my ownership in radio influence. I'm like, hey, you know, I want to do an MMA podcast, and I'm like, all right, well, what's what's your podcast about? How are you different than anything else that's out there? Because there's a, a million MMA podcasts out there. You know, for me, I mean, obviously with this Insiders podcast, it's more kind of about the business side of MMA. Where my other MMA podcast, MMA Report, is about the news, and you know, I try to try to get uh, you know find those guys that are on the regional scene that maybe you don't know their name now, but let's try to find out the stories with these fighters before they end up getting. I mean, you know, perfect example of that. I just posted an interview I did with Adam Milstead, who's who's fighting next week at the UFC card in Houston. I talked to Adam when he was on the regional scene, and usually that's where you, you truly you in, and that's where you build relationships is with those guys, you know, as they're working their way up and they remember who you are. But yeah, it's all about. You know, being unique, you know, I can't, I, I'm sure you're probably just like me on fight night. I look at my t timeline and I'm just like, I see a lot of people that don't separate themselves from the rest of the media. Like the, the, the people that just constantly do play by play. And I'm sitting there going, there's 80 people that are doing that. And, and that's why on fight night, I do stats and I, and I do various things because I would look back at it and I'd say, no one's really doing this. Let me separate myself a little bit. Well, that makes perfect sense, and that's the reason why a lot of people ask me, they're like, Kareem, why aren't you around on most fight nights? Well, because if I don't really have anything to say, I'm not going to just speak, like say exactly what everyone else is saying on Twitter. It makes no sense to me. Like you just said, there's so many people already basically regurgitating what's on our screens in the first place. It's unnecessary to add another comment into that void there. When I have something of note to say about any of the fighters on a card, Recent, like for instance, uh, recently Alexei Oleniak was fighting. So, mm -hmm. in, for instead of just uh, going by the play by play like everyone else was, I had written an article about the Ukrainian militia that was masquerading as an MMA promotion, and this was part of just as like during the the civil unrest and and the and the ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine, and this militia was was quite severe and they hurt a lot of people and they were basically against uh, the the uprising that had occurred. And Alexei Oleniak was one of the main fighters and a team captain there. But a lot of people messaged me afterwards saying, should we hate Oleniak for this? Is he a bad person? Am I supposed to be like upset watching him fight? So I felt the need to tweet that night that this article was exposing an Ukrainian militia 
that, that was not exactly to do with Olenek. He happened to fight for the MMA promotion, but nowhere in the article did I state that he was a participated in this or was a willing participant or anything of the sort. So I felt the need to, at that moment, uh, explain that situation. And then I went off Twitter again. As soon as I had something to say again, that's when I come back on. But apart from that, yeah. just being like everyone else, it makes no sense. Again, you're just going to fall into the void and then people are going to get used to seeing your, your Twitter your Twitter name pop up and they're just going to assume what's going to be said. But then again, if you're showing up less frequently, chances are people are going to notice you just to say, well, I haven't seen this person post in a while. He must have something to say right now. It's interesting you bring that up because I remember towards the end of uh, my terrestrial radio run, they they brought in a, a social media expert, and that was one of the things they they mentioned about if you're a reporter, you know, sometimes you know having those massive amount of tweets is not a good thing because then people just don't take your tweets uh, as important. And for me, one of the things I honestly just started doing was, you know, because I, I do so many fighter interviews that I basically if that fighter's coming up, and particularly if it's a, a Bellator or a UFC show. I'll take a, you know, a small portion of that interview, something that's under two minutes and 20 seconds because uh, Twitter just lets you put a video up there that's two, two minutes and 20 seconds or less and basically just put it up there. You know, something they said, like last week I, when Kevin Casey was fighting, he, I talked to him about recently meeting Barack Obama. You know, what, what was it like meeting Barack? You know, things like that. It just, I, I try to just separate myself to, to give people a reason to, to follow me. But, uh, you know, you know, you really, I, I think that for the most part, I think the two things people would know about you is your, your coverage of Russian MMA. And I think also your long form pieces, I, I, you and Sean Alshadi of MMA fighting do a tremendous job, something I could never do. One of the things I always say is you got to know your strengths. My strength is talking. That, that's my strength of sitting in front of a microphone and talking about the sport. Y'all guys do a tremendous job with you. But in terms of Russian MMA, what, what initially drew you to say, you know what, I want to start reporting on this? Well, it's very interesting. I, 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 for a very long time, I, like many others, was fascinated by Fedor Emelianenko. As a matter of fact, he was one of the main reasons I became a fan of the sport, was just watching his fights in general. It was just, it was magnificent, really, to behold. So at one point, I had an opportunity to interview uh, Vadim Finkelstein, and that's when I really started getting interested in, uh, in covering the sport. So I, I did a lot more research, I prepared for this interview. And then I got, like, after, like, discussions, I got an opportunity to do commentary for M1. So when I actually got to be in Russia, and actually attend attend these M1 Global shows and do the commentary for them and had to actually try and differentiate between who these different fighters are and realizing at this point, you have to understand my, 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 my knowledge on Russian MMA and just Russia in general was very, very limited. Like truly, truly very limited as a political science student myself in university. That wasn't one of the regions we really studied. And that's saying something that just shows just how, how the world has changed past the Soviet times in general. But uh, my knowledge was very limited. So when I started seeing Muslim Russians with, with Arab-resembling names, I thought that was fascinating. And I ended up being on a bus. The, the event that I first covered, uh, well, not really covered, was there as a commentator, was the M1 Global event where they co-promoted with ACB. And this is back at the end of 2014. Now, since it was a co-promoted event, there were M1 fighters up against uh, ACB's Chechen fighters. So these were all fighters from Chechnya, and I didn't even really know what Chechnya was. At that point, I had only known that there had been war in Chechnya and that it had basically been carpet bombed. And that was a few years earlier than that, and that's all I knew about Chechnya. So when I saw these fighters on a bus and I sat with them and we were on our way to the event, 
they were they were just fantastic to me and they told me all this history about their place and the, the kind of hospitality they have in Chechnya and what separates them from Russians and I remember saying so you're not Russian they're like oh you should never call us Russian we are Chechens we are proud to be Chechens we are yes we are kind of like our republic is part of Russia this is due to history but we are proud to be Chechens and when I returned from my first event is when I thought, you know what, there's a lot to be written about this. No one's writing about this region. I mean, Khabib's coming up and no one, no one even knows where he's really from or who he is. So I thought that there was a lot, a wealth of long form material there. And this is, this, is, this is the point where I've been inspired a lot by a person you mentioned just a second ago, Sean Al-Shadi. I was inspired tremendously by his writing. And I always knew that what I wanted to do was magazine length. Uh, writing and even longer like I hope to write books in one day so and that's the sort of writing I enjoy doing the longer the better I'm a storyteller at heart that's that's all I ever want to do one day I will not be a journalist and I'll be a storyteller instead but Sean Shadi was my main inspiration so I decided to really focus on that I had already done an interview with Ed O'Neill the people would know him as Al, Al yeah. Bundy my very first long form but past that I thought you know I don't want to just do profiles of people I need to find a way to make this more interesting so I decided I'd focus on Russia and that led me to Khabib's father, Abdul Manat uh, Nurmagomedov. I had met people in Russia who knew him, and they put me in touch with him. I interviewed him and spoke to him, and I was I was I was shocked. I couldn't I couldn't believe the wealth of knowledge this man had, and the, and just the the life he had lived just through the army afterwards, and the things he did, and the way he took care of kids in Dagestan. When I realized that what he was doing, and he was so modest about it that he wouldn't even stress the story. I had to stress it in my article because he wouldn't stress it himself was that he was basically by by taking care of a lot of these kids basically and putting them into sports and teaching them that discipline he was basically saving them from a life of potential fundamentalism which is really something that's very severe in Dagestan with poverty and with lack of education they're going down a very dangerous route in an area that's already full of very very violent extremists so sports is a fantastic way to keep them away from that it's a way for them to know they have a future there's potentially potential to make money to enter the sporting elite under Putin so writing those stories is where I gathered my knowledge as a as a student of political science, it was easy for me. I logged onto my school uh, database and downloaded absolutely every academic article I could find on Russia and uh, the North Caucasus, and I started reading. Then I bought books, and then I bought more books and more books, and kept reading and started writing. And I did. I took. I took months to research the first few long forms I did, and then from then on, it became second nature. Jason, I just kept watching events and kept reading. And the more people asked me different questions, the more I found I had the answers. To them and as I kept visiting Russia I'd meet people I'd ask questions I'd visit the monuments I'd visit churches I'd visit different things and I'd ask I've always when I was there I tried to be a listener more than a talker I found that that was really important because people had a lot to say like the, the Russians tell you never ask a Russian kaktila which is how are you because they'll tell they'll actually tell you their life story at that point they're not they they seem like they're people who won't speak but they really will speak if you give them a chance so you ask a good question you're going to get a long detailed answer and chances are you're going to learn a lot from it believe it or not a lot of the articles that I've come up with over the past while, a lot of the investigative work came a lot from these conversations I've had. They'd be conversations like over dinner, conversations over drinks, conversations at events, all these different things. It was just a wealth of information. I thought basically I tapped into a, like, uh, like a gold mine. No one else was writing about this region, and it was just all open to me. I could take my time to research and write and know that I wasn't going to be scooped because people just weren't interested in covering it yet. Yeah, I, I can definitely tell you that. I mean, there's, you know, I I think I've probably really been 
maybe one of the few people, I think maybe Steve Morocco, MMA junkie, that you know really would would try to find out things about Bellator drug testing. And there'd be times where I'd be hounding various you know executive directors, and they would tell me like, Jason, you are the only one that has asked about this, so you will have the exclusive on this because you're the only one that, that's gone out to do that. And uh, you know that's really that's and that's and that's one of the things about MMA media. We're always worried about if we're working on a story. Is there someone else that's working on the story? And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, it's not like we get these stories overnight and it's like, you know, hey, we get it at one o'clock on, you know, Monday afternoon and and it's on, you know, on the website we write for, you know, at five o'clock. It, it takes time. You know, I, I've had some stories where it's taken three or four months and I'm sure you're just like me. You've had stories where you've worked on for two or three months and you kind of get to that point. And you say this thing's going nowhere because I can't get anybody to go on the record with me. I still have stories right now, Jason. It breaks my heart as we discuss this right now because I have stories that I know are important and I just cannot get the sources to speak on on record. And in, in one particular case, I cannot blame them. I honestly cannot blame them. It's really dangerous. It's very risky. And it's not worth it for an MMA-related article, to be honest, just to influence mm -hmm. It's yeah. mainly a political story, and just it's very risky for the sources, but it breaks my heart because that sort of confirmation is the only way I can get this published. So there are stories like that where you know you're stuck, you're at a dead end, and you can't move forward. But then there are other stories, like, for instance, I just published uh, a long form on the Egyptian Revolution, an MMA promotion that uh, struggled to survive during it, and that was a 16-month process. And I, I took my time through that. I mean, I translated all the quotes, etc., from Arabic and spoke to multiple people, visited a lot of the places. It was, uh, it was a long, long process, but uh, I knew I wasn't going to get scooped. I knew no one else was going to be writing about the yeah. Egyptian Revolution. So that was one story that I could take my time with, and it was going to come up whenever it had to come up, and on the anniversary of the revolution, it's when I posted it. You know, it's funny. One of the things you mentioned about is, and I tell people this all the time, especially for MMA reporter and you travel, if you're not a drinker, you got to at least go to the bar because that's where everyone's at. And because that's where you, that, and I'll tell people when I traveled, that's where I started developing relationships, not just with, with managers and fighters and, and their cornermen. It's at the bar because pretty much, and especially, you know, and, and for a lot of media members, when you're on travel, you're in the same hotels for the most part as the fighters are because, you know, there, there may not be many hotel options. And I tell people, I, I said, even if you're not a drinker, I, I remember there were people that, um, you know, Jason Herzog, the referee, he's not a drinker. And, you know, there was a, for a while, people were like, why is Jason Herzog not in, you know, in Nevada? And there were people that would say is Jason just doesn't mingle at the bar people because he's not a drinker. But now I think Jason's finally getting his, his recognition there. But, uh, you know, un, you know, unfortunately, that's a part of the MMA game. And, and that's how you build relationships. It's essential. And I think I was very lucky, especially in Russia, because as a commentator, I mean, it's, there's there's no there's no shame in admitting this. I mean, I was I was basically they pay for my flight and I would stay in the hotel with the rest of the team, which is what I was there to do. I wasn't there as a journalist. I was there as a commentator. So my access was as as easy as it gets at that point. I mean, I'm in the building. I know where the fighters are. I basically know which rooms there are. I could go down, look at the list, and find out who is where. If I want to speak to anyone for any reason, I can just say, well, I'm just preparing notes for fight night. I need to know what's going on here. Here, I need to know with a few details about this person so I can fill up airtime, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I had easy access to people in general. And it was always great because I arrived there a few days before the event. So you have a few nights where you have the choice of gathering a few people and going out 
and actually going and like hitting the town, doing something. And it's usually a mild thing where we go check out the sites, find a nice place to sh- sit, and like the people could have like a shisha or a, or have a few drinks or something along those lines. And then you return back to the hotel. But the conversations you can have either there or in the bar itself, it's, it's incredible. That's exactly where most of the conversations truly happen. And I mean, you don't even have to be a big drinker. As a matter of fact, if you're looking to get a story, I recommend you don't drink very much. Have one drink and make sure the rest are drinking. Problem is, in <laughs> yeah. Russia, there's going to be shots coming at you. Like, like you, you it's, I'm not a big like person who drinks shots at all, Jason. Honestly, not. I really don't like shots in general. But first of all, the vodka in Russia, if you have good vodka, it goes down like water. Uh-huh. And they just force it upon you. It is a big insult if you don't take it and some toast with caviar while you're at it, basically. Uh, I'm not uh, a big shot person anymore, but I, I mean, I also worked in a nightclub for 10 years, you know, uh, three times a week. So shots were always coming around. So uh, I guess that's probably a big reason why I don't do, you know, I'll do a shot every once in a while, but you know, not, not, not too much. I mean, if you, you see me out and about either, uh, if I'm drinking a beer, it's probably a Yingling, and, and if you see me drinking some liquor, it's Jack Daniels. So uh, if you ever see me out, that's that's a good chance what you're going to see me drinking. But uh, but it, it's exactly the way way you build relationships, and uh, it, you know. But it's interesting, you know, to see everything you report. And there's there's so many questions that that I got asked, and, and a lot of it really has to do with Russia and, and the TV deal that's going on there. You know, and it is it, it you understand why. They would the U.S. meaning they the UFC would be going to rush without Khabib Nurmagomedov because at this point you have to have Khabib on pay per view. Even though I, I truly question what Khabib's star power is, and, and and my basis of that was I was you know when he fought here in where I live in Tampa for a Fox card there wasn't there wasn't a big Khabib Nurmagomedov contingency in the venue and that was. You know, you look at Conor McGregor, no matter where he goes, there's a huge Conor McGregor uh, contingency. And, you know, so, but you know, I think there's a lot of fans who are sitting there going, man, how can you go to Russia without Khabib or, you know, even without Fedor? Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm glad, honestly, that Khabib came out himself and said that he's not going to be fighting in Russia because he has to fight on pay-per-view. Because I was getting really, really tired of constantly responding to people on Twitter and telling them, look, stop dreaming that Conor McGregor versus Khabib Nurmagomedov is going to happen in Russia. Impossible. It cannot happen there. That is money wasted. First of all, it wouldn't succeed on pay-per-view like that. If it does, if you're still aiming to put it and aim it for the North American pay-per-view market, then what? You're going to put it on at 6 in the morning in Russia in a stadium somewhere? Who's going to show up? That doesn't work. Who's going to allow that to happen? They have laws as well where places have to be silent at a certain hour. It's a conservative country by most regards. You have to jump through a lot of hoops, and it's never going to work that way. They're only going to be able to go there with a fight night car, which means unless Khabib loses like two or three in a row and is relegated to that, He's going to be fighting on pay-per-view in the United States, and they're going to be taking the majority of their Russian fighters uh, that they can, that they can gather at least, and local talent that they'll sign when the time comes, and place them on a fight on a fight night card uh, in Russia. That's the only way that would happen. Now, Khabib Nurmagomedov is an interesting case because I found multiple people, and you just mentioned this, Jason, which is you find a big contingency of Conor McGregor fans at his events. I tend to think that the reason Khabib doesn't have the same thing comes down to basic economics, really. I think that the Irish are just are, are basically better off than mm-hmm. Dagestanis are in general. 
I think that really factors in a lot of a lot of Habib's fans, and I've noticed this from the Twitter, from just following his social media and the sort of people that he connects with the most, like the people that are really connected to him and follow him closely. They're usually Muslim from usually poorer areas of the country. So we're not talking central Moscow. Of course, he has fans in Moscow, St. Petersburg, etc. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is. He really seems to have a lot of fans in like smaller places like Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and these places where generally the the majority of the population is quite poor and they come and live in rural areas. Dagestan is mostly rural areas and, and, and mountains. If you get on one of those planes once going to Dagestan, you feel the turbulence heading into those mountains, you can either drive home or think of somehow never to go back again just because of that turbulence. At least that's me. So imagine people trying to make that big flight just across Russia to the United States, considering the Russian ruble and the currency exchange rates and, and, the, and the recession they're going through in general. I don't think it's possible that Khabib can get a big population into the United States in the first place, plus trying to get them all visas, etc. I think that that's just one way that it's not going to be, it's not, it's not a great way to analyze their popularity. But then again, if Khabib does fight in Russia, I think you're in for riots, basically, from how many people will show up. I've seen videos of him going to Astana in Kazakhstan and attending basically he was supposed to be just there for an interview and a seminar and the place was so packed that people were rioting outside just to try and get into the building to see him just to see this guy so he's definitely very popular because he's finally someone that they see they're, they're very proud of the idea of a combat sports star that represents first of all he wears the dagestani papaha so he wears it proudly he's a he's a practicing a pious man a religious man so he's a practicing muslim it's another thing they take they take very seriously and just he holds himself very well in general let's let's forget khabib's like ties or who's around him in general khabib carries himself very well in general he's a good role model for a lot of people and they see it that way in russia i mean when he's at interviews etc he's, he's polite he's well dressed he's shaved he, he's he's not a big trash talker in general it comes around a lot in the united states and again what we see on twitter is not necessarily khabib i i oblige anyone to go check his instagram account and you'll see a significant difference between his instagram account the way he posts in russian and what comes out in english on twitter so He's a very interesting character, I think, and I think if you tap into the right markets, which is very tough for the UFC because they're not going to enter that post-Soviet space that way, that's where the market really is for Khabib. That's where it really is. But in terms of the United States, I don't know. So he's a complex one, really, Jason. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things you, you mentioned there, and I, I wrote down three things. Uh, you know, First off, you know, the thing that, that impresses me the most about him, and, and, and I'll correlate this to Jose Aldo. Why has Jose Aldo not become popular in the United States? doesn't speak English. And that's where I think uh, Nurmagomedov has, has been. Whoever told him to learn English, that, that person needs to be praised because that has helped make him into a, at least a notable fighter because you, know, you can't understand him. You know, in terms of the visa, that, that's a major issue across MMA. You know? and, and there's some, you know, you know, I, I remember when the Frodo Kostobolayev situation was happening and you know, I was asking people upon people and, and no one would give you a straight answer. And, and sitting there saying, look, if the United States is not going to let you in, there, there's something up there. No, and no one, and I would get, people would ask me this all the time. I go, look, I can't get anyone to go on the record. So I can't report anything until someone comes on the record. You know, you also mentioned about social media and, and I know people will, you know, will, will rail on, uh, a fighter who, who's not maybe doing their own social media. And obviously, you know, Khabib's managers, Ali Abdelaziz, 
I have no problem with whether it's Ali or another fighter's manager running their, their social media. I have no problem with that. Uh, you know what? In general, I think it's okay, especially if think about it we really we have George St. Pierre I think for a couple of days if I'm not mistaken a few years ago when it was clear that he wasn't the one managing his accounts I think there was a slight like uproar in like Twitter where people felt really like bad about it like oh my god George St. Pierre doesn't even run his own account he's not one of us he's a celebrity etc etc but just think about that like if George St. Pierre is not running his account probably Ronda Rousey is not running her account no way exactly right so none of these people are running their accounts i mean that's not a big deal that's a lot of people use these accounts as a way to brand yourself and mm-hmm. to 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 post a message or to spread a word or pr- promote yourself i mean that's the, that's that's a tool that's a legitimate tool for for uh, for media in that regard and that's how twitter is used by a lot of people so i don't see that as the issue what i do see as the issue is when it becomes an agenda that's not necessarily the fighters and we've seen that multiple times in the case of Frankie Edgar and Khabib. It doesn't sound like them when they're speaking. And you can tell Frankie Edgar is not the one who's going to go on Twitter and, and rant about multiple things or attack certain fighters. You know what's going on there. You know it's his manager trying to stir a story. And I, I think, I think in, in that situation, I think you know before that tweet or that Facebook post goes out or even an Instagram post or whatever it may be, is the manager should send it to the fighter and say, hey, this is what I want to put on your account. Are you cool with it? And I cannot remember now, Jason, to be honest, but I think I think Frankie was – I don't know if the time Frankie was interviewed by Ariel at, right after yeah, the I, I Yeah, I remember that, and he, he basically said, he goes, look, uh, I, I, you know, Ali's not going to be tweeting for me anymore. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Exactly. I was, I, was, I was trying to make sure that I didn't get that wrong, but it seemed like there was a bit of a misunderstanding there between them in that regard. Where things weren't communicated uh, correctly, or it seems uh, Ali went out of his way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, and, and I thought it's it's great what you brought up. You know, social media, whether we're talking about you're a fighter or you're reporters like we are, or whoever or whatever your job description is, th- it, it's a way for you to brand yourself. You know, I mean, look, you know, part of the way I brand myself is based on you know podcasting and and also what I, I do via via social media. You know, and and my views of social media have definitely changed over the years, but it it is a it's it's a tremendous way to brand what you are trying to accomplish. I couldn't agree with you more there. And I, I tend to use Twitter exactly like that and somewhat unapologetically now. I used to feel bad when I would retweet my work or I would continuously post multiple articles that I've worked on, but you know what? It works. And the tweet it gets it gets to more it gets to more eyes. Your followers increase. The branding works, and you end up with a certain segment of people who are like at least uh, interactive with you. They're they're interested in what's going on, and they continuously interact with you and deal with you and ask you questions. And that's what I found has been happening over the past while. I cut down a lot of my random comments just just posting a picture of uh, food or or going out or saying I'm watching this match or watching this tennis match. I'm not too concerned with people knowing what's going on in my life right now. I'd rather <laughs> you got to have a personal life. <laughs> I'd rather simply use that account for the purpose it's there for, which is in my case to promote my articles 
and the concepts that I believe in. I'll, I have to, just to make sure people are, are understanding the articles I, I post, I have to continuously tweet out examples of sports diplomacy and the issues that are going on. Yeah. When I see someone tweet about an issue that I think relates to politics and sport, I will talk about that and I will explain how this relates to what we're doing. Because I know people are listening, I know people are, sorry, are reading in that regard. And that, the, the more you pass on that information, at the end of the day, my job here is not to... Uh, be an activist or to change things or whatnot. But I am here to make sure that there is always an access to information and that I am in some way educating someone. This is not to say I'm better or I know more, but if it's a, if it's a topic that's not talked about and I have the opportunity to share something about it, I damn well I'm going to use that opportunity. It's like when I get asked a question and I don't know the answer. I have no problem responding with, look, this time I don't know the answer to your question, but I'll look into it. You know, because that that happens a lot. You know, people ask these questions, you know, like, uh, you know, for instance, we're recording this here on uh, Thursday, January 26th. You know, earlier today, it, it, you know, one of the representatives of the Bellator PR department announced that the main event for Bellator 171 is now a catch weight of 180 pounds between Melvin Gillard and Chidi Nchikwani. Initially, it was a catch weight of 175 pounds. And, you know, so, you know, I start, you know, trying the best I can. And as I record this podcast, basically what I, I've been told is that uh, both fighters agreed to, to make it a catch weight of 180 pounds. And, you know, and, and I mean, look, you know that either one or the other fighter was having trouble making 175. It's not it's not hard to figure out. But, you know, people were asking me, like, oh, is it Melvin? Is it cheating? I go, look, at this time, I don't know. All I can tell you is, is the information I've learned to this point. I mean, and, and that's the thing as a reporter, you can never be afraid to sit back and say, no, I, I don't know the answer to it. You know, it, it's just, um, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of questions you get, you know, that you, you sit there and, you know, it's, it's like one of the questions we got was from uh, at Ryan Thomas Seven May was asking about Bellator gross revenues. And he says, is paying their fighters a guaranteed minimum of of, of $1,500 comparable to the UFC guarantee of $12,500? Um, you know, in, in the best way, you know, and, I, and I also asked about what, what's the gross revenues for Bellator. Look, I don't have their financial documents. I couldn't tell you how much their, their gross revenues are. But, you know, Bell, I think what a lot of people don't understand about Bellator and the UFC, it's two different business models. You know, Bellator, there's the Bellator preliminary card, and then there's the Bellator you see on TV. It's two different business models. Those preliminary cards there, it's just like a regional show or even to an extent a, a World Series of Fighting show, which they don't necessarily always do the, the best part of this, is that preliminary card is full of guys just putting butts in the seats. Well, they have to do that. I don't think people, and I think people take for granted just how powerful the UFC brand is that no matter what mm -hmm. the card is, an amount of people are always going to attend the event just because generally it's a novelty to them. They don't get it a lot in town a lot or for whatever reason, they'd want to see a big UFC card. So before even the majority of the fight cards there, people are buying tickets and you know you're going to fill up most of the seat. I mean, of course, you're going to tailor it for, for each region somewhat, but never like you generally do on a regional fight card. But every other promotion does not have that uh, that advantage not in the slightest so i don't think people should be shocked at all or should scoff at the idea that that the, Bell the, the bellator prelims are nothing like what we'd expect them to be or what you expect of what of the second major promotion at the end of the day it operates just like you said region as a, a, a jason as a regional promotion and this this was very evident to me when they when they worked with bama and it's 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 something that we'll continue to see. And I, at the end of the day, it's a good business yes. model. It's, it's it's a brilliant business model. Exactly. 
And it's a successful one. Why ruin something that's successful? Do you, like, this is a way to sell tickets. And those undercard fighters, they sell tickets. We, I've seen it. I've seen when Bellator came to Ontario and had Ontario fighters on the undercard. And everyone there, everyone in Windsor or, or wherever we were, is there for those people. And the stands might actually empty a little bit. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll never forget. I've told the story many times. But I'll do it quickly here. I remember going to a Bellator event in New Mexico. I get there. It's about hour, hour and a half before the fight card is about to start. I want to get in there early, get get squared away. And there was a bunch of fans all in the same T-shirt. I asked one of the Bellator people, I go, who are they here for? Oh, he was supposed to be the first fight of the night. He's after the main card now because we want to keep those fans around. And, and that's and that's just the way it works. And, you know, and, and that's one of the things when I go to regional shows, and, and I don't go to regional shows a lot, but I always say for MMA reporters, you should go to a regional show about – yeah, once every six months or so, eight months, just kind of see what how people react to it. And uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see uh, regional promoters make is where they put their massive ticket sellers at the beginning of the card. I mean, the last regional show I was at, the three quarters of the building wasn't there for the main event. And I mean, like, I'm like, that was just a bad job by a promoter. And you see it all the time. Um, it just happens. But, you know, Bellator, I mean, and this is not a new, this isn't something like Scott Coker and Rich Chow brought in. This was something that Bjorn Rebney and Sam Kaplan were doing, you know, back in the day of, of those local ticket sellers. It's just the way, you know, and, and I know people will complain about the pay of those fighters, but I mean, it's like, what do you think of fighters making on the regional scene? I think people don't even understand that this is exactly what's happening internationally as well. This is not just a North America regional thing. This is an international thing. Say, for example, the events in Russia. And I know this just because I've done, what, maybe a dozen M1 shows. So I've traveled to quite a few different places in Russia. And each different place, the card is tailored very, very differently to make sure that there is local talent mm -hmm. on that card. That's essential. People want to celebrate their own. And M1, and I'll never forget going to Azerbaijan. And M1 made sure to place the big the, the big Azerbaijani fighter who had fought a couple of times before for M1. I'm, his name's not on the top of my head right now. I'll hopefully remember him before the show's out. But uh, he was he was he was on a win streak for M1. But he was only been on the prelims beforehand everywhere else in Russia. But then now they're in Azerbaijan, and uh, he is on the is in the co-main event, and he won by knockout. And I'll never forget the way the crowd roared. There and it was a fantastic look for M1. Their main cards broadcasting, and they've got this like full arena, like just like like roaring in appreciation for their fighter winning a match that he was pretty much like supposed to win in the first place. Really, like it was yeah. it was it wasn't it was a first round knockout. It was an easy one, but the crowd loved it all the same. And this is a strategy that works everywhere, if if not necessarily just to sell tickets. Because at the end of the day, I think Russia has the advantage that as long as a Russian's in the main event, which they're always going to be a Russian in the main event, it's usually a Russia against foreigner or or two particularly big Russian prospects against each other. In either case, the crowd's going to stay for those. So you don't have to necessarily worry about people leaving, but it's a great way to make sure people show up and that they're an active crowd as well. Actually, leads to a question that, that Ryan Thomas had sent in, and he said, which promotion is making the most impact regionally out of M1, EFN, and ACB? I'll say this about ACB. They're throwing some money out there to some United States fighters. Oh, definitely. And that's why I, I don't like that the question specifically said regionally, because that, that changes it slightly. But it has to be ACB that made the most impact. And the rate of improvement 
definitely goes to ACB because what they've done since I'll never forget just the first show that as I as I mentioned earlier the first show that I did in uh, in Russia was the co-promoted M1 ACB show and they co-promoted with M1 just to get recognition that was their way of sort of like showcasing their fighters on a bigger brand right so since then they have grown exponentially exponentially they, they've hired multiple people including PR people and and others to make sure that they can get the right fight cards and they can enter different markets. And I think they did the right thing. And this is done for multiple reasons. At the end of the day, they're not the, they're a Chechen promotion, or at least Chechen originally like based promotion. They, most of their first events in Grozny, etc., they still do some there. But at the end of the day, the dictator in Chechnya has his own promotion, and that promotion only does only only operates in Grozny. ACB, in order for it to survive and succeed in the first place, had to expand outwards. It was probably in their intentions anyway, but this probably accelerated as well. They, they both can't operate in the same place. They're both friendly. They're, they're separate entities. So the warlord's not necessarily involved in ACB. Separate entities, which again, at the end of the day, in order to survive in the first place, you're going to have to be friendly with him. So ACB has done well in leaving that Chechen market behind, maintaining their stronghold on their, on their key fighters, that, that are well known for, as their as their fighters like Musa Khamenev, etc., and using using them in other areas in Russia. And then they just they, they did one better. When they would expand outwards, they didn't just rely on the Russian fighters. They'd bring in other stars. Like think of the Manchester card coming up with Mamet Khalidov against Luke Barnat. Now that's something I didn't see coming. I've been to KSW shows. And I know how important Mamed Khalidov is to them and just to the Polish crowds. I've yeah. seen how celebrated he is there. I'm shocked that he's done this. I know he's been very friendly with ACB. And I believe Burkut either sponsors him or represents him in some way or he's very friendly with the team. But I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that this agreement came about, to be honest. But I know Mamed Khalidov will definitely have to be back in Poland in time for their big stadium show in May. But to think that I, that's really cutting it short. If anything happens to him in that Barnat fight and he's not there for the stadium show, whew, yeah, like that's, that's a big dent in Poland's card or KSW's card, sorry. You know, and they just had that show uh, in Irvine, California, which they, they had some – I was attempting to watch it live and it was just uh, some streaming issues, but they're trying to come into, into the United States. And uh, there's – if they continue to – want to do shows in the u.s there's gonna be a lot of regional promotions in the u.s that are going to find out that some of these guys that that are draws for them they're going to have to pony up the money because acb is ponying up the money these guys i mean some of the numbers i've been told are being thrown out I, I i'm just like as a regional fighter everyone's like sign me up sign me up i want that deal and it's just you know in I get asked questions like, "Well, why don't you put public record requests in for you know, uh, you know, salaries for a regional show?" And I go, "The problem with doing that is it looks like you're trying to trash a promotion." I wonder if ACB could would use that opportunity. I honestly don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking aloud here. I wonder if you'd put in that request, or in general, if if you'd ask from ACB themselves, because in Russia it's a very different way of trying to get uh, the numbers. You're not going to go through the Russian MMA union. They don't sort of track it that same way. So say you want ACB, and not necessarily in the U.S. I'm just thinking in general right now. If you want those numbers and you go through them, I'd wonder if they'd want to give you the numbers just to promote how good they are in general. And, how, and why people should fight for them. Because I know they're very well funded. Their, their founder, Merbak Hasib, 
is definitely a, a good supplier in that regard because they haven't done very well in ticket sales. And I know a lot of these things are growing pains in general of a promotion. You're not going to succeed from the start and it's not going to be easy. I mean, we just saw Euro FC fold before their second event already. I mean, it's it's a difficult business. It's never been an easy one. The MMA market is a very volatile one. But I, I, I would never get into running an MMA promotion. I, I, unless I unless I knew I lived in a market where I could run, say, an a, a event every quarter, and I was in an area that had just you know a, a, you know great amount of local ticket sellers. I mean, there's you know there's certain markets here in the U- U.S. you look at that that are really good markets. You know, the Northeast MMA market. Um, you know, CES has done really well for themselves. Um, you know, you look the Kansas City markets uh, is a good MMA market. I mean, here in Florida, Florida is not a great MMA market. It's just not. You know, and the problem is like you know, you, there, there's a couple of gyms here where I live in in Tampa. You know, Orlando seems to do very well for the UFC. South Florida is not a great market for MMA. And, and, and yes, you have American Top Team down there. You have a couple other noble gyms. You know, we, you know, you got the Combat Club, which has essentially become the new Black Zillions. But it's the problem is none of those fighters are from South Florida, and so they're not really ticket sellers. And and there goes the the deal. Then in that regard, we just talked about how important that is to generate that income that's going to keep those uh, those small promotions alive. At the end of the day, they don't have to operate like feeder leagues because in in the right market. You can succeed as an MMA promotion, mm-hmm. but oh man, it's like it's like thunder and it's like lightning in a bottle. Really, it really, really, really is. Because think of, and I take it back to KSW's success, and I think to myself, imagine KSW had tried to do their ambition somewhere in like Toronto, Canada. I mean, Toronto is a notoriously bad market for MMA, at least in my opinion. I've had this argument with many people multiple times. Yes, it can churn out good talent and whatnot, but it does not have the star right now, especially especially in the like, past George St. Pierre and after the UFC came multiple times. There is just nothing. There is There are no regional events here. We've got a lot of media for some reason, but we've got no events here to cover, except when the UFC occasionally graces us in, the, in Toronto. So I think to myself... So KSW would never have flourished in a place like Toronto, never would have flourished. But to think that they are one of the most successful MMA promotions ever because of how they cornered that Polish market, made it their own, and then helped just the whole uh, the whole like national MMA industry flourish because of it. So whoever is not signed to KSW is fighting for all these other Polish promotions that are also succeeding. I remember meeting multiple people in Russia, and one of them was uh, Lukas Bukasi, who's actually a referee for M1, who actually runs an MMA promotion in Poland. And I told him, what's the point of doing all this? Like, isn't there KSW? He's like, you think KSW is harming me? He's like, they're helping. Like, all these different things, these things help. Like, they still can survive because there's so much of an interest for MMA there. And KSW only does four shows a year. So there's a lot of gaps in between there for all these other MMA Mm -hmm. promotions to thrive and for people who want to watch fights to watch fights. And yet they'll still thirst for a KSW show because it's been four months since one. When was their last event? uh, Early November? Or sorry, December, sorry. Well, they're not having another show till May. So imagine how many people are going to be interested in that in Poland. So they've, they've actually done something like incredible, and I cannot see many promotions ever succeeding like that. M1's M1 strategy was quite quite interesting in that they would continuously partner with different people, different corporations, or different uh, industries, or different actual like brands in general 
in the region or sports ministers, etc., in Russia and around. And they, they'd enter a partnership that would help them cover the events that they're going into, basically. So they enter like sort of a co-promotion agreement with the regions they go in. And that helped them stay afloat because Vadim would be the first one to tell you. I've asked, this, I've asked him this on the record and I've asked him off the record. People can check the articles I did with Vadim where he talks about Russian uh, the Russian MMA scene in general, he says there's no money in it. There's no money in TV. There's no money in the stands. You know how many people get comp tickets? If you think regional MMA in the United States gets comp, I have never seen anything like it till I got to Russia because I always get my band for as the commentator right at the entrance. And then I could see the stacks and stacks of comp tickets, basically. And the and it's not like they're just handing them out to the fans. In general, that was easy. You could fill up the stand. It was the, it was the ringside area that seemed so reminiscent of boxing. I couldn't believe it. You'd find like three or four rows there. And all those people are all rich and famous or somehow powerful. And yet none of them wants to pay a single penny to attend the event. Yeah, it's you know you see it, which actually kind of leads a great transition into some questions about Russia and the television deal. And basically, I'm going to group all these together because I think we have a great conversation about it. And this comes from uh, at George One UFC fan. He said that if the UFC had landed Fedor, would it have been made it easier to get a good TV deal in Russia? Will the UFC wait until they get a TV deal in Russia before playing an event? And will Bellator beat the UFC and put on a show in Russia first? I know Bellator has a TV deal in Russia, but I, I think if you're Bellator, there's only three fires on your roster that you would do an event in Russia with. And that's Fedor, which is, I don't think that's really in their best financial interest to have Fedor on a tape delay. And then the air two are Shomenko and Koreshkov, which I think you could put on a tape delay, even though I, I despise tape delay uh, for sporting events. And, and I, I love the fact that the reporters last weekend in L.A. were uh, grilling Coker and John Slusser about why are you tape delaying shows in 2017. But, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the rest of you know, the Fedor aspect and also the UFC and, and planning event there, what's kind of your thoughts on how you think that's going to unfold? It's a really interesting question because Fedor himself, had he had he signed with the UFC, I think things would have been very, very different. But honestly, say we fall, say we go with that assumption or say we go with what's happening in reality right now, I think the situation would be exactly the same because the UFC would have still tried to leverage a bigger deal. And here's the thing. I'll tell you, Jason, this is what I know from sources as to what – and the UFC is going to hate that this number has come out. But what they, what they get paid – for the TV rights, the Russian, like what Match TV, which was, which is the biggest public sporting broadcaster in like uh, in the, in Russia, and basically broadcasts everything. It's going to be broadcasting in the World Cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They paid the UFC five hundred thousand dollars annually, annually for the for the TV rights, the UFC, everything, including the pay per view events. Mm -hmm. It's an abysmal deal, but. Is it, though, like, because could they really leverage something so much better in a place where the events are even going to be brought are only going to be broadcast in the middle of the night and the currency exchange and all the different issues in dealing with Russia in general and the fact that Russian fans and this is this is not me just speaking of what I've seen personally, but what is known as a culture in Russia, people just don't want to pay. They're not going to pay for things online. I think the American audience doesn't understand sometimes just how much pay-per-view is uh, 
an alien thing to to most people around the world. It doesn't make sense. Like I remember moving to Canada from Egypt and being told like the first U, the first UFC event I think was a fight. Then we watched it on TV, and then the next one I was told yeah we needed to either go to a bar or we needed to like pay sixty dollars on uh, on pay per view. I'm like what the hell is this pay per view thing you're talking about? I didn't I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that you had to pay sixty dollars to watch this thing just one time. So, and I, I remember asking my friends, I'm like, you're telling me I'm not even purchasing it? I don't get a CD for this? I don't get to watch it every time? What is this? I couldn't understand the concept of pay-per-view. And I still think it's amazing. <clears throat> it's amazing that somehow all these entities here have managed to convince people that the pay-per-view is such a natural, normal thing you should be paying for. Because nowhere else in the world is anyone doing it. I remember growing up as, 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 as a kid and watching WWE pay-per-views. I didn't even know what a pay-per-view was at the time. I just thought, oh, this must be their special, their special event. And I would watch those events for free on TV in in Egypt and in Bahrain and wherever else I, I grew up at the time. And it's just a concept that people don't understand. So in Russia, they're gonna they're gonna basically uh, stream everything online and illegally, and they'll snatch it from wherever they can. They're brilliant with computers in general. I mean, <laughs> politics alone, anyone who's reading any headline can tell you right now, everyone's talking about Russian hackers, Russian hackers. Well, now just imagine Russian teenagers who want to watch UFC. It's not going to be very hard for them to find it. So Match TV isn't really inclined to pay too much for a TV deal. I highly doubt they'll be able to leverage something better. But the UFC was very smart. What they actually went and did was hand over the licensing rights to a third party mediator telesports who's now shopping the rights around now assuming this is a russian it's a russian entity that's actually quite powerful and has a lot of uh, uh sway in russia in general they should be able to do better negotiating than the ufc themselves as foreigners were so there should be a new tv deal sometime somewhere down the line but Russia is never going to be the lucrative market that people think it is. It cannot be. And I intend on writing a lot about it in detail because the Russian entities themselves, which are the ones that are broadcast at the right time in Russia, are the ones that people know. And they know them well. They understand them. They know those fighters. And they, they, they get that. Those are the fighters that they follow to the UFC. I mean, how many M1 fighters have gone to the UFC and fighters from, from Eurasia Fight Nights and ACB, etc. These people are now going to the UFC. And those are the, fight, those are the fighters that people in Russia are following along with because they got to watch them at the right hour. Basically, people don't really know the UFC very well. You know, so the UFC hasn't done a great job of promoting itself. So Khabib is a big opportunity to change things. But in terms of the TV and actually profiting in the Russian market, I, it's, I still can't fathom why Dana White seems so excited about the Russian market, saying it's the next big thing for, for the UFC. I, I, I still can't understand. I still can't understand why Ari Emanuel would, would make the trip to the Kremlin himself to meet with Putin's inner circle. He met with Deputy Prime Minister of the Russian Federation, Vitaly Mutko. Just to discuss a TV, not not the TV deal, but a UFC event in Russia. I mean, what could they possibly think they're profiting? Unless there's something far more insidious involved, and we're 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 dealing with some sort of sports diplomacy here in the form of cage fighting. I cannot understand why the UFC would set their sights on Russia so much. If it's a novelty effect, sure, their first event will be a big success. People will attend again because of the novelty, but. People aren't used to paying for things, and they're not going to pay UFC prices, and they're certainly, certainly not going to pay them during a recession. That's a slap in the face. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, if they would have gotten Fedor, who knows? But, I mean, I think for the UFC, you can't, I mean, financially, it doesn't make sense to have a, a top Russian fighter fight 
you know, at 6 a.m. local time if you want to put them on pay-per-view in the U.S.? Yeah, makes no sense. It makes no sense. They'll stay up and watch Khabib, but they're going to do it for free. And they'll watch him because they know that this is an opportunity to see the first Russian UFC champion. Potential. Oh, I, th- I, I think it's not. I, I don't think it's if. I, I just think it's when. Well, that's a, that's a different discussion, I guess, for a different time. I think I think it's a phenomenal fight. I mean, I don't know if you want to get into that now. I think the fight's fantastic. It can go both ways. And I think it's exactly the right fight to make, which is rare these days, honestly. Like, the UFC has been disappointing in that regard. They've gone full entertainment rather than yeah. forgot the sports I, part of it. it. My thing with Nurmagomedov is, I mean, I think there's still deficiencies in, in his boxing defense. And right. you, you saw that in, in the Michael Johnson fight. Michael Johnson was lighting him up there in the first round, but then ultimately he gets the fight to the ground. And look, Khabib gets you to the ground. You know, you, you know, you're you're pretty much on. You you know the end is near. And I mean, the matchup against Ferguson is is an unbelievable fight. You know, really looking forward to that one. Even though, did you see the poster for that fight card? It's abysmal. After looking at at Boss Logic's poster with Habib stand, well, I guess it was a Habib and Connor uh, Connor one with Habib with the with the bear behind him. That gave me goosebumps. That's what you should be going with. You want to sell this man as a star? Are you trying to sell him as a star, or are you just? I because I look at that poster and I'm thinking, who the hell are these people? That's exactly what I think. The the poster they did for the Halifax show is a thousand times better than what they did for a pay per view. They're not even trying anymore. Did they just fire everybody? Is there nobody sitting there? Is they, they just have someone's nephew sitting there with Photoshop now? What's going on? Or MS Paint? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so bad. It, it's like I, I just these posters come out, and I'm just like, yeah, especially that 209 poster. I'm sitting there going, if you know, who has to sign off on? You know, you got to think at some point that's got to come across Dana White's office to where he, he's got to sit there and say give the yay or nay on i can't imagine dana would look at that and go all right cool that's good it's like they've given up on that actually being a successful event or making money well if, it's not exactly a headliner that's going to drive pay-per-view interest but do you give up on it like that because that's what that seems to me that you've given up on this event well here here's the other thing that i i've i've t- had people who at best are, are casual MMA fans. And they said, what's the next big UFC fight? And I'm like, okay, look, 209 has got a really good main event, co-main event, but is that going to get massive amount of people to be interested in it? No, I go, honestly, it's not till Conor McGregor fights next. And summer is probably the earliest we see Conor McGregor. I, been asked this question multiple times and you know what's funny is people immediately respond themselves saying ah it looks like the biggest thing anyway we have to look forward to is apparently mcgregor versus uh, mayweather and i'm i i feel horrible just bringing this up right now jason but that's that's how dire the situation is right now that's what people are thinking but they're like what's the next big thing well there's no ronda there's no mcgregor in the future there's no fights lined up in that regard we're not seeing nick diaz anywhere and even that's not a big name I mean, nate diaz as well none of them or anywhere, John Jones is still out for a while. We've got nothing truly big on the horizon. No, it's it's it it really says a lot about you know just the lack of building stars, you know, and I think that you know you also you put the blame on the fighters too. It just can't be a blame on the UFC. You know, the, the fighters have to help develop the, themselves. You know, and and one of the questions that we got was about 
expectations of UFC pay-per-view figures in 2017 with no Ron Rousey and minimal appearances from Conor McGregor. And, you know, Dave Meltzer had a, a great piece a couple days ago, you know, breaking down all the numbers from 2016, which really just showed outside of a McGregor, Rousey, or, or UFC 200, you pretty much knew what a UFC pay-per-view was going to do. You kind of know where that, that bottom line is. And, and I've said this for some time, WME has to make paper if you're going to continue this pay-per-view model at least till the end of uh this this current Fox deal is you got to make pay-per-view special again. You know, you look at UFC 208. It's a good fight night card. That's not a pay-per-view. And I think we're going to see that shift now because I mean, from what I understand, and I am by no means the TV expert here, but from what I understand, it looks like WME IMG is 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 that's the big one for them, right? They're leveraging a new deal, oh, yeah. and they want, and they and they need it to be huge just to cover the their missing profit margins right now that they need to make that the executives there have been all have been obligated to make basically. So if that's going to be the main focus, then aren't shouldn't the natural next step be focus more on TV and put those events like 208 on TV? instead of as a pay-per-view mm-hmm. okay if you're going to focus if that if that money is going to be diverted to tv anyway it's going to make up for the pay-per-view losses that you're getting from 120,000 pay-per-view buys anyway so dedicate that to a solid tv card you do that you're you're you're, you're fixing the problem with bad pay-per-view you're going to lose that negative press the, that 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 perpetual cycle of negativity slows down a little bit or it, it's because it's because you have your interests are diverted now people don't have to worry about I'm not going to pay $60 for this. This is not worth my money. This is an insult. The UFC is insulting us. The UFC thinks we'll pay for whatever. Well, now that's a free TV card. And focus on stacking the deck for four or five giant shows a year. I mean, this is not a new idea by any means. This is what we always wanted in that regard. (laughs) But I can't can't see if, if there's ever a time to go ahead with it. It's now. The stars are aligning in that direction. Clearly, just based on the desperation, WME, ING are right now with with the money they need to make up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things it, the the days for the UFC doing twelve, thirteen pay per views a year need to be over. I, I think they need to you know, get that number down to seven or eight and just make it to where you know, like a UFC two hundred five, where you're just like, you know what, I, I got to sit there. And I got to pay, you know, personally, the way I take in UFC pay views, it's me and two of my buddies and, and we just split it three ways. And, you know, so it's, you know, 20 bucks and, uh, you know, you, you sit there and enjoy the fights. And at the end of the day, you, you just hope, you know, you know, I keep hearing from people like, oh, well, Holly Holmes a draw. And I go, what makes you say Holly Holm is a draw? The pay-per-view she has fought on was against Ronda Rousey, and Conor McGregor was in the main event. So we have no clue if she is a draw. You know, I had a tweet um, a couple weeks ago, and I said, you know, we all know Conor and Ronda are 1-2 when it comes to UFC draws. Who's number three? And, you know, I had some people mention Nate Diaz, and I said, I go, okay, he drew against Conor McGregor. But if he's not fighting Conor McGregor and Conor McGregor's not on the fight card, is he a pay-per-view draw? Well, if we're specifying just pay-per-view draw, then I don't think we have any proof whatsoever that Hall is a pay-per-view draw. I mean, people still dispute if John Jones is a legitimate pay-per-view draw. I mean, we, we've we've seen him do 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 reasonably well in, in some regard, but I mean, when we see Conor McGregor numbers and stuff like that, of course you're going to hear hear people argue about it. My question is: Is that the only way we should rate a draw in general? Because as we enter this 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 new age. As we say, and we're trying to discuss the idea of lessening uh, pay-per-views just because we don't really have the stars in the first place. 
a draw should be determined as in like, okay, well, there are draws where people are going to get unique crowds, for instance. That's a, that's a certain person mm-hmm. who can draw something. Say like we were just discussing with Khabib, for instance. I'd say Holly still has a certain media appeal. So she might be a draw in that regard, basically. There is still that interest, that sort of mystique around her in that regard, at least. There was recently, and I can only say that just because I remember for the other outlets I worked for, they were always interested in Holly Holm stories. Even after she lost, the, after, even after sorry, she lost to uh, Misha Tate, she was still someone that people were really interested in after that uh, Ronda Rousey fight. And those articles always did very well. I did a long form for her on on, on her story for uh, Sports on Earth. That stuff did quite well. So I don't know. That might just be my bias or my personal experience on the matter, but I think she might ha- be a reasonable draw in a very different way. Now, whether that translates on TV, well, potentially. I don't know. But does it translate to pay-per-view? Highly, highly doubtful. Yeah, I mean, you've got Aaron Silva in that car, but I don't. I, I think at this point it's not going to – you know, it's going to be – you know, and you just hope as just a fight fan and anyone who covers a sport as a fight fan – you just hope that the fights end up delivering. I mean, that that's what you hope for. But, you know, in terms of the UFC, and we've kind of talked about some changes that have been made. One of the big changes last week was Eric Winter, who ran UFC Fight Pass, uh, announced on his Facebook that he's exiting the promotion. And we got asked about, is this a bad sign for the future of Fight Pass? I would say, yes, it, it is a bad sign. And, you know, there's some people in the industry that have some doubts of whether WME is all in on a streaming service. Um, you know, and, and when I look at Fight Pass, there's part of me that says, why do I have it? And, and yes, I can sit there and go, well, you know, I pay one time a year, so I pay like 83, 85, something, you know, something around there. You know, so it's not, you know, essentially I pay seven ninety nine a month. So it's not expensive, but I'll also sit there and go, I don't use it much. I mean, probably the most I use it for is when I'm interviewing a fighter and it's a UFC fighter, I can go back and watch some previous fights, um, you know, see some different things, you know, maybe, maybe every once in a while I'll go back and maybe watch a replay of one of the regional promotions on there. But, you know, overall I just, I look at fight pass and I think it could be so much more than what it is. And I, I do have my, speculations that maybe part of why, you know, and Eric said he wants to do with his family, but you have to wonder, you know, if Eric was a valued employee, you think they would say, Hey Eric, you can live in California. You don't have to worry about coming to Vegas. I honestly don't know. And it would, what happened with, with Eric Winter. So I hesitate to really discuss, uh, his, his portion of the thing, but I, I cannot help but agree with you, Jason, that this is not a very good sign for fight pass at all. I mean, Think of all the promotions that ended up just signing signing with uh, with Fight Pass to have to be, to be broadcast on there. Well, they they went all in on something that might not be there in the near future, mm-hmm. and they can't. From what I understand, the contracts aren't fantastic. They're not making good money off them, and in general, the viewership's not great. I mean, you have the occasional spikes with which is with Fedor Emelianenko, and the only reason I can say that that was a potential spike is because Dana White himself said that that fight drew drew numbers, basically, or at least got eyeballs, or that he noticed the difference himself. But Fight Pass is in a very, very peculiar place right now. And I, I cannot help but compare it to WWE. And the way what I think, Jason, went wrong, personally, is that they didn't go all in with it. WWE went all in. There was no alternative. You, you want to view the product, unless you're watching Monday Night Raw on, on TV, they still had their TV deals. So they still had the SmackDown and Raw on TV, but everything else, the pay-per-views, everything went on 
the the network, the streaming service. The people had to had to get that streaming service to watch the big fights. But you don't do you don't need that with Fight Pass. They never showed that that was truly a big deal to them. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things of, and it should be noted that all their TV deals come up at the same point, including their pay-per-view deal. And, and I thought that one of the things that they really should should do is basically essentially put together a, a yearly package to where, hey, you, you get everything, and it's all via a, a streaming service. Because, I mean, look, it's it's not cheap to be a UFC fan. I mean, if you want to purchase every pay-per-view, I, I think they, I mean, and not counting what you have to pay for cable to get, you know, say, FS1, because um, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when I, I hear promoters for a cable channel say live and free, I go, tell me how I get Spike TV for free. You're 100% right there. There's nothing free about it whatsoever. And I'm glad you always mention it because you're, you're saying exactly what I'm thinking every time in that regard. I, not- I just like I, I sit there. And I just go, come on. It's not free. Yes. <laughs> if I have a cable subscription, I have access to it. But it's not free because I get my direct TV bill every month. It's not free. <laughs> You and I both cover and like watch multiple sports, Jason. I, I honestly, you were mentioning this might be the most expensive. I think there it, there isn't another sport that's more expensive to watch, unless boxing is having a superb year or something. But in yeah. general, there is no other sport this expensive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the figures I, you have to pay for the UFC. I think the NFL Sunday ticket is like three hundred and fifty dollars for a season. Um, you know, I, pay- I think that's what it is. I mean, uh, the baseball package, I want to say, is around 200 for the season. You can get a tennis subscription to watch all the matches apart from the Grand Slams, which are, by the way, like on, on TV generally. And when I say free, like it's on, on, on cable TV generally, if you're in Canada, like you can watch most of the Grand Slams quite easily in that regard. But uh, uh, other than that, everything else, all the other matches from all the tournaments around the world, all 12, all 12 months, $100. Yeah, hundred subscription. You could be watching everything. You're done. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, and I think it's it's really it's an MMA industry problem as a whole because as more people cut the cord to basically say, I'm tired of you know paying these fees. I mean, I, I the only reason I have you know satellite or cable um, is because of live sporting events. It's it's the only reason to have it, and, and, but I think that. You know, a lot of these, you know, sports properties and sports networks are starting to realize that, you know what, there's these people out there that are are tired of paying, you know, a hundred plus dollars, you know, a month for cable or satellite, and, and they're just cutting the cord and they're just watching Netflix or Hulu or, or whatever it may be. I mean, Sling's a, a great service as well, but it, it's just the industry has changed, and I, I mean, look, I don't. I don't see how WME is going to get four hundred fifty million dollars a year. I, I I don't see it unless they're going to unless they want to stay in the pay per view model, and they're going to give a cut of the pay per view to whoever you know buys the rights. But I think that it's going to be multiple contracts. I don't think it would be like an FS one exclusive. I think it will be on multiple networks. Ah, so you think they'll actually split up the the rights to different things? So certain things like fight nights will be somewhere and on multiple things in different places. Yeah, that's that's why I think you're going to see kind of like, you know, you think about uh, back before the FS1 deal, they were on Spike and also on Versus. And look, mm-hmm. and I tell you, if, Sp- right. if Spike could get back to UFC, you think they wouldn't do it? Of course they would. But I, I think that it's, you know, I, I, it, I think in an ideal world, if you're the UFC, you'd love to be on ESPN. That would, that would be your ideal situation. But I, I just, you know, 
I, I don't know if that you know the money's going to be there like they think it's going to be there. And, and one of the things I point to is if you're Fox Sports and you're paying, I think you know they're over now over a hundred million dollars a year. You know, look at the cards you're getting. It yeah. doesn't exactly excite the fan base. Not in the slightest. I re- I really wonder if this is even this is this why TV is by no means my specialty, and I truly wonder if this has been worth it in general for Fox. Like you can probably tell me a lot better, Jason. If this has been, uh, I mean, well, they're they're trying to develop a sports network. I mean, yeah. and you, and at the end of the day, you need sports play by play. You know, I, I think you know. You know, the MMA industry as a whole, I, I think the problem that I see is for a lot of promoters, TV is the end game. And mm-hmm. that should not be the end game. The end game should be making money. You know, and, uh, you know, especially when I hear these promoters like, you know, oh, I'm on CBS Sports Network. And I'm like, you're paying to be on CBS Sports Network that is not in a lot of homes. Um, it's not a basic cable channel. Like, what? And, and it's a tape delayed show. Like, you're not going to make money on that. Oh, it's an uh, ego thing, not long-term thinking at all. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, egos is a problem in MMA. <laughs> I mean, just just look at the regulatory. What's going on on the regulatory side of MMA right now? It, it's it's about egos. Oh, it is, 100%. You know, um, you know, but one of the things I want to talk about was uh, our experiences as MMA reporter, good and bad. And to me, from the outside looking in, and, and I think it's probably based on you know some of the articles that written, but it seems like you may get the most hate of any MMA reporter out there. I, 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 you know, I don't take that personally in general, Jason, only because I know a lot of what I write is very polarizing. I understand that. And I guess, I don't know, really. It's, it surprises me sometimes the extent of the anger and how, how upset people get over certain articles because they'll think that I'm in this for some sort of propaganda or some personal gain or I've got an agenda. This is what I hear a lot is I've got an agenda. I'm thinking, huh, if I have an agenda, why am I writing about both sides? Why am I writing about all these different places? I don't understand what my agenda would be. Good reporting, journalism, that's an agenda now. So I understand when you write something polarizing, like I write an article about, say, the Ukrainian militia. Well, that article won't necessarily be very, like, very, like, people won't enjoy it in Russia. Why? Because, well, Russia, the Russian government was funding the the, the fighting in, in eastern Ukraine in the first place, and Russians believe Crimea belongs to them, and hell, Ukraine belongs to them too. So, in general, if I'm writing an article showing that these certain pro-Russian athletes were were, were harming human beings in, in Ukraine who were just asking for their independence, well, of course it's going to piss some people off. And that's the first thing I do when I when when someone tweets me or says something. I check and I check their bio and I try and make out where where their hate is, is coming from. If it's, a, if it's a racial thing, if it's a, a geopolitical thing, if, it, if it's just a geographic thing, just people in different regions. If I'm writing about that region, you don't like what I'm writing, you might have something to say. But there are ones that are far more insidious that, that I get. Things like, I'll never forget one, one message I got, which is, I can't wait. For, this, is, this came on my Twitter account, too. I quote retweeted this, I remember, so it's somewhere on my account. I can't, I can't wait for the day I read in the news that they found your body with two bullets in the back of your head. Now, <laughs> that person really had to hate me to say that one. It's either that or they're just looking for a reaction, which trolls do and people have bad days. I've seen it. Like <laughs> People have bad days and they get really, really angry about things. And sometimes people get very touchy. I write about Khabib and okay. People need to understand something. I'm gonna, as a journalist, I'm gonna report every single fact I have, whatever side of the story that is. If I, if something, if he has 
like ties that are worrisome. And then he goes out and threatens the UFC that the UFC will never go to Russia. Well, it's my obligation as someone who knows the information to post that he has ties to a dictator, that a dictator personally loves him, loves everything he does, the Chechen dictator Ramzan Kadyrov, and that his ties to EFN and to a billionaire named Ziavuddin Magomedov is pretty much strong enough to ensure that if he doesn't want the UFC to show up, they pretty much won't show up in Russia. So that's stuff I have to post. But then people will come out and say, well, you're anti-Muslim. Well, you don't like the Caucasus. Well, you just hate Khabib. You're an Egyptian traitor. I've gotten all these different comments because people seem to think the only time you post something negative is if you have a personal agenda or something that you feel is wrong with them. No, how about that person did something wrong and I'm reporting facts and I shall not be intimidated because you don't enjoy what you're reading. How about you look that athlete in the eye and tell him why are you putting yourself in a position where a journalist can so easily find information like this about you? How about you do the right thing in the first place? Because I certainly think I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, there's people in MMA that they hate when the truth comes out. Exactly. And, and and every MMA reporter has gone through this. And I think I'm I'm going to say it's pretty safe to say one of the guys that doesn't care for you uh, is on Twitter at KVote2191, who he had sent me a tweet when you know I announced that you were going to be on this podcast. And he said, well, you ask him about the bad Caucasian people are and say about hateful things about Khabib. And uh, he goes, I guess you guys will attack other UFC fighters from Dagestan and Chechnya. That's all he does. And, and it's it, it's... It's funny he says that, really, because all what, how do we start this this interview, Jace, with me explaining all the research I did and all the articles yeah. I did, all that I wanted to find, and how I was mesmerized by Khabib's father and how he was trying to save save youngsters who had athletic ability from potential fundamentalism. I, it's it, it, people who people will always see what they want to see, and we're seeing this in the world right now. We have a divided United States with with Trump, with Trump and the anti-Trump. Really, like it's 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 a, a divisiveness that we haven't seen in a long time. And and I'm not going to expect any less of my articles and expect that everyone likes everything I say. At the end of the day, I know where I stand. I don't hate any of these people from the caucus. As a matter of fact, had I not been writing any articles about them, I had dedicated an entire long form in six months of of writing to the tragic ancestry of North Caucasus fighters. Now, why would I do that if I hated them? What I was trying to achieve in that article, and I think I did very well, is show how they have been cursed by geography and by a czarist empire that was determined to crush them and how that defined them, and how they're still standing strong to this day, despite continued attacks from Slavic Russians like Putin. Yet, somehow I hate the Dagestanis, and people, people come to the side, like they'll look at me, they'll be like, are you a practicing Muslim? Are you this? Are you that? Because they'll see my name is Karim. And Karim is traditionally a Muslim name, or at least Abd Karim is a traditional Muslim name. But uh, people always, they want to know these, this piece of information. Like they think they can judge you based off these certain things. And I always make a habit of never giving, off that, giving that information. Because why? Why give them a weapon they think they can wield in a, in a way an added way they can judge you because if someone wants to hate you because you're a Muslim, they're just look. They're gonna look for anything they can anyway. If someone wants to hate you, or wants to wants to look for a reason other other than that, they're gonna find it anyway. So don't feed them any extra information. But <laughs> it's it's shocking to me how many people come and just like handpick certain comments and certain points in certain articles they don't like instead of read a whole body of work. But again, a troll's a troll. <laughs> no, no, no. The ones that my biggest pet peeve when it comes to things is when you tweet a story mm -hmm. or, you know, you, you do a podcast and you mention something 
and then they ask a question that it's like you just told on yourself that you did either you didn't listen to that or that podcast or you didn't read that article because you the answer your questions in there you know i had one this week where where someone um responded um about uh, about the, the post fight show I did for the uh, Bellator show last week, like, well, what do you think about the the work accusations? I go, well, clearly you didn't listen to the podcast because I talked about it. It's like people are too used to in this day and age being spoon fed information. I refuse to be a part of that. I remember this was a big discussion I used to have with with my boss uh, on Bloody Elbow, Nate Wilcoxon. He used to tell me not to dumb down my work, but to remove unnecessary language. Like, I, I love instead of saying the word harrowing which I would use, he'd say, use the word shocking. It's a word that more people will understand, yeah. hence more clicks. I hated that mentality. I really did. And I, I'll, this is a sidetrack slightly, but it'll lead back to the point you, you were making here, Jason. And it's that people just want to be fed information in as quick as, quick as possible, in as short amount as possible. That's not what I'm here for. I, to get a real story, to get investigative journalism, not 10-word answers on, on a note card, for like a debate class or something that you're just trying to prep for. If you want to really understand something, you want to do good investigative journalism, that takes time, that takes months of research, and I will not condense that information. I will not dumb down my language because some people don't have the energy to learn. That's not my concern at the end of the day. And I refuse to spoon feed people information on Twitter. Now, if someone is asking me a legitimate question, and people do that all the time, and I honestly love how engaged like the audience that likes my work are, because I'll get lots of really smart questions, anthropological questions, sociological questions, economic questions, political questions, and I love that. If it's not in my article and stuff like that, I'll always happily respond. But if it's right there in the first few sentences, I have no interest in having a conversation with you. Oh yeah, it's 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 biggest pet peeve of mine when when oh, something yeah. that gets brought up, and I'm like, well, clearly you didn't listen to. You know, in my what I do in terms of, of listening to a podcast and what you do, but you know, I mean, look, every MMA reporter, we have good and bad experiences. And one thing I'll say this is, I would say probably ninety percent of the conversations I have with people in the MMA industry are off the record. It might be higher. I mean, and, and that's because you know people say, "Oh, tell us what you're hearing." I'm like, I can't because it's off the record. You t- and so, when someone says it's off the record, it's off the record. Yeah, <laughs> people people find that my people have like come to me and said, "Oh, I'm fascinated by the stories you put out in Russia and all this." And like, can you imagine what I haven't been able to publish? Yeah. Either because a it's off the record, and b like I mentioned earlier, I just simply cannot get the source to want to go on record, or or it's not safe for them to. And all those are viable options. And it happens sometimes, and you're stuck with information that you're unable to use. And some fans get so mad, they're like, "Well, if you know something, you've got to say." No, I have to be a good journalist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's there's been a you know there's been one instance where I, I did a story where uh, within about an hour or two it got posted. I got first off got called and asked who my sources were, and I was like, "Do you seriously think I'm going to tell you who my sources are? Because you can't be you, you can't be serious." And then they like we demand a retraction. I go, "It ain't happening." And I looked at and I said, "I go, I have physical proof, and no, I'm not sending you my proof." I go and I and I still have the documents to this day. Um, you st- I'm glad you stood your ground like that. And, and, and the funny thing is, it was about a year later. Someone had said, "Yeah, we knew you were right all along." <laughs> and that's the thing. Not enough. And that's the thing because that's why they'll do that because they know a quick threat or a, qu- a quick small form of intimidation like that will scare off 
99% or at least 90% of the journalists in our industry. Most of them, like we said, are either bloggers, hell, fanboy bloggers to some extent. And I love to bring that point up. There's a difference between a reporter and a blogger. 100%. You know, I, I, you know, I look at, and I don't, you know, there's a lot of small MMA sites that I go to, but I'm, I'm sorry if it's just MMA Junkie Light, you're not getting me to come to your website. Exactly, and that's, that's why I love working for Bloody Elbow. Everyone on there, or the majority of the writers on there, have, know have something that they're interested in. They follow these. We have we have such a passionate group, and I think everyone feeds off the other's energy. They read articles from one person. And they know, well, I want to do something like that. And we start looking, we all dig, and we all help each other. And it creates that, it's a creative culture that comes out of it and blossoms from that. And not every site is lucky enough to have that sort of community. And others are just based on reporters. And you've got like MMA fighting, they're reporters, they know what they're doing. Bloody Elbow is on that fringe element where it's a blog with some exceptionally solid journalism on there as well. So you're on the fringes in many regards with what you're doing. And a lot of other sites can't say that for themselves. A lot of other sites are there. Just they, The site is almost a front so that specific people can just get tickets or not tickets, sorry, credentials. <laughs> and get to interview fighters that they love and have good connections with these fighters and be in touch. Just so they can tell their friends, look who I have on speed dial. I can text this person now. I can text them yeah. after the fight. I've seen it with my own eyes. I think it's disgusting. I'm someone who's faced intimidation i face threats i face all the sorts of things you're talking about jason and i've been i've been threatened with that i've been threatened i will disappear in russia i've been told all sorts of different things that hasn't stopped me from doing my job yet the slightest sign of conflict for most other journalists and it scares them away well quite frankly i'm insulted to call them colleagues it's funny because um I had a, a regional promoter, and this was probably within the last six, eight months, said to me, he goes, he goes, hey, you know, I want to have my, my fighters come on come on your podcast or you do interviews with them um, because I'm looking for real reporters to talk to my guys. He goes, I'm tired of doing sh- doing things where it's just someone who wants a free ticket. You know, we, we want somebody that, that's got a credible name doing things. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I, I have no problem talking, you know, and the guy doesn't have to be a major name, you know, I'm, you know, in, in my interview style, you know, I really don't write a lot of things down when I interview a fighter because I, I, I listen to him and that's just because of my years of, of, of interviewing people is, you know, if you listen to what they say, sometimes they give you stuff and they, you know, don't realize it. It was like. I, I did an interview with Adam Milstead this week, and he mentioned about his daytime job. And I said, I go, okay, why does a UFC fighter have a daytime job? You know, because, you know, people are going to say, hey, it's, a, it's the biggest mixed martial arts organization. You know, there's a story by Brett Okamoto this week on Michael McDonald in, in terms of, of why, you know, his financial issues in terms of whatnot. And I, it's one of those things that when, when I hear financial things, I think it's always we don't know the true story. Because we don't know how they spent their money, so I think it's kind of hard to automatically, you know, dodge. I mean, look, I'd, I'd love to see fighters make more money, but uh, it's 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 one of those issues. And you know, and, and as a reporter, I, I you know, most of my experiences are good in this industry. But yeah, I've had a couple of bad ones. I mean, and uh, and usually most of the time, the bad ones are are something that you reported that someone didn't like. And and my usual response to it is, I go, "Are you telling me what I report is false?" If it's false, okay, you have all right to be pissed off at me. But if I'm reporting something that's true, you can't get mad. I recently had the manager actually call me up about the story I did 
and I, I, I don't want to name the manager because they wouldn't want me to, to name them publicly, but it's a, it's a, it's a well-known manager. And it's not, it's not the one you're thinking of, Jason, who I have generally have conflict with being Ali Abdulaziz. I'm thinking of someone else here in Thailand. This person was extremely, extremely respectful on the phone on the phone call, which I thought was very interesting. Approached it in the sense that, Kareem, I think you did a fantastic job. Your reporting is all accurate. I want to make sure that this is like completely, like that you're aware of that I'm not telling you that anything wrong or you said anything wrong. He was, they were simply concerned about a certain element shining a bad light on on a certain on a certain fighter so i had i had a a productive discussion at that point but there was at no point was i being told oh well this is a fake story this is bad story this is bad work or whatnot because it wasn't and if you approach it like that you know that's not the reaction that's not that's not going to get you anywhere with me so have, being able to have a good discussion like that with this particular manager, even though it didn't change anything in the end, having that good discussion gave me hope that there's at least a certain amount of respect shown between that part of the industry and our part of the industry. But again, like you said, Jason, we all end up with bad moments. And I can, I can name several journalists off the top of my head. I don't know if they want to be named here, but I can think of several journalists off the top of my head who generally are in a lot of trouble a lot of the time. With, with people like they get they get uh, not in, in conflicts and they get uh, intimidated by by people and they stand their ground but it affects them big time and they get shunned from the rest of the media and it's it's terrible to see especially some of them are incredible 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 investigative journalists one easily to name and I know he won't mind me naming him is Mike Russell it's terrible to see that someone like Mike Russell who's worked on a story that I'm not overly concerned if many of you think this is legitimate or not. I've seen the documents. I know what the story is. And I know what he's followed is going to go down as one of the bigger stories in MMA journalism and MMA investigative journalism in general. It's only a matter of time. But Mike Russell and his work got shunned in general by the media. And that's really disappointing. And it leads us to how lonely it can really be as a, as a good reporter. I mean, I posted multiple articles this year where I was thinking, well, this might be finally the time where the rest of the media decide that they can cover these topics that I've been railing about for so long. And they don't. The one that shocked me the most, and I can say right now, I know you and Sam Kaplan actually did discuss this on the podcast. So I have to give you credit for that because you were one of two, the only two other podcasts I know discuss this with the Severe MMA podcast and the Three Amigos podcast. Only once. And I listened to every one that week, just to make sure. Those were the only three podcasts that discussed this, which was Fedor's daughter being attacked last year. Now, the supposed greatest fighter of all time in MMA, arguably, let's just put that there. Yeah. His daughter gets attacked. Now, I don't care if you understand the politics behind it or you don't understand the politics behind it. You mentioned that. How do you not mention that? Are you that terrified? That someone's going to come after you over writing something like that? I, 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 I think there is. I, I think there's a lot of people um, in the MA industry that are scared. You know, what, one of the you know advice I always tell people doing podcasting is, if I listen to your podcast, I need to know how you feel about something. I can't walk away where you're wishy washy and. You know, and that's I hear a lot of that in podcasting where you, you just people doing MMA podcasts, they don't really give you anything. And at the end of the day, you have to, you know, and there's a lot of great MMA journalism that's being done that, you know, and and I'm one of these people that I, I you know, 
I find a lot of stories on Reddit. I think Reddit is a great way to just find links, you know, people just posting various MMA stories. And, you know, sometimes it's from, um, you know, various smaller sites. I mean, I'm not saying this because you're on here, but Bloody Elbow is one of my favorite MMA websites to go to. You know, just because of I'm a person that I love original content. You know, and as I've gone throughout my career, I mean, like someone goes to MMAReport.com right now, it's all original content. There is no, nothing you're going to find. It's all my, my interviews with fighters, you know? And, and so I always, I always love original content because it's, it's out there. I mean, and, but, um, but there, there's some things I see in MMA that just, and I think there are people that, that are scared, you know, of, of what could come from it. I mean, you mentioned Ali Abdelaziz. I have a pretty good relation with Ali. I mean, have there been times where, where myself and Ali have not been on the same page? Yes. But I always say this about Ali Abdelaziz. He'll pick up a phone and he'll call you. And, and that's, and that's, I, I respect Ali for that. You know, there's, there's been times where I reported things good and bad and, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, sometimes he'll text me and said, Hey man, you know, you got a couple minutes we can talk. Sure, man, call me up and you, you talk to him. You have, you have a conversation. That's one of the things I'll respect about Ali is, you know, he may not like what you have to say, but he, he does, at least for me, he picks up the phone and gives me a call. I can say it works slightly different for, for, for bloody elbow, but I, I personally don't want to make myself the story of, of, of this. I'll just say that I've had very different experiences. with I've had very similar experiences to what you had, where he's always been very willing to pick up the phone, have a conversation. It's just how civil that conversation is, is that is where it varies in that regard. I, I will tell you, we, we had a, <laughs> there was one conversation we had that it was, it was, you know, pretty confrontational. And then, uh, the WSF came here to Tampa and me and him just sat in a room and we talked and, and it was at that time. I had no idea he was a huge American football fan. And that's how I learned he was a big football fan. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 when you bring up Ali, you know, I think it, it transitions to conflict of interest in MMA. And there was an article on MMAfighting.com this week about Alliance MMA and Sucker Punch, which, you know, the news that, that came out, I think, uh, a week, two weeks ago, um, which was something I kind of knew it had been in the works. It wasn't, it wasn't something surprising to me. I, I had heard about it for a while. And if you would have asked me about conflict of interest in MMA three years ago, my answer would be different than it is today. And, and my answer today is it, it, it can't be a general thing. To me, it's a case-by-case basis of whether there is a conflict of interest. And, and, and you know, people will – I think there's a lot of people automatically will say, well, if a manager's involved in a promotion, it's automatically a conflict of interest. I'm like, uh, well, first off, go find me a regional promotion that doesn't have a manager or a coach tied into it. And it's interesting because no one ever brings up the coach aspect, but there are coaches involved as well. And to me, it's a case-by-case basis. Are they doing something that is wrong? And you, there just can't be a general rule about whether it is or it is not. Well, I understand what you're trying to say, Jason, and I agree to for the most point. But when you're trying to define a term in general, conflict of interest, or you want to put things down in law and whatnot, you have to sort of – uh, generalize it, right? Or else, or else, working it case by case is going to be exceptionally difficult. And the thing is, relatively in MMA, most conflict of interests could be very, very irrelevant in that regard. Like it's very, it's it's minute. It's something that most most promotions are. It's almost inherent in the culture of of, of the sport. Like you said, how many regional promotions are affiliated in one way, shape, or form to a manager? I can say this applies to Russia as well where there are even more conflicts of interest. I mean, I wrote about the conflicts of interest when Fedor, who runs the Russian MMA union, was fighting Fabio Maldonado in, in Russia, where the judge 
is, is was the judge's new Fedor worked for his organization and the referee was someone who personally knew Fedor and had pictures taken with Fedor was a good person I met this this referee multiple times I've never seen him not do his job well but the conflict of interest exists that doesn't inherently mean something bad or something wrong is going to happen at that moment but it does mean that something exists an issue exists and it's when we start to make exceptions is when it, it snowballs for many, many more exceptions. And, and where, where, do you, where do you set the line? How do you know when something is negatively impacting a promotion? How do you know when a certain conflict of interest is, uh, is, is, is negatively affecting this either a fighter or the manager or the promotion itself? What, when do you actually intervene then, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, are they doing things wrong? I mean, it's, you know, and, and obviously the conflict of interest, I think Ali Abdelaziz became the the poster boy of this, whether that was fair or not. You know, I, I think one of the things I always point to, in particular with the World Series of Fighting, is people point to Ali, but why didn't they point to Ray as a coach at Extreme Couture when you have Extreme Couture fighters fighting in the World Series of Fighting? I agree. I agree entirely. And just because one didn't point to the other doesn't mean we shouldn't point to the first one. We should be pointing at both of them at the same time and scrutinizing them. The key is to scrutinize, not necessarily to to arrest, to harm, but to scrutinize. That's what we're here. As media, our job is to scrutinize those wielding power. And in our case, that's MMA promotions. And if there are certain managers or certain people within the promotion who are also managers and also happen to be managing their own fighters and somehow miraculously those fighters happen to be making $100,000 or they have the best deals, well then something fishy is going on. And that's, you ought to look at that because there are other fighters who on that, on, on that roster who didn't get those, those deals and who maybe deserved those deals but didn't have a manager who was an executive for the promotion. Like That's something that should be dealt with, in my opinion. He happens to be an example that I think was a fair example to look into. Yeah, the problem with—this is my thing with the World Series of Fighting. God bless those fighters for making those kind of money. Um, but I just I look at it from the business side as I don't know how the World Series of Fighting— I mean, look at that New York City show. I mean, it's not if. It's just, it's a matter of did they lose over six figures. I mean, I, I just I look at them and, and, you know, look, Marlon Moraes is an incredible talent. Is, is he a top ten fighter? I don't know. And, and, you know, he, I think he has top ten fighter abilities, but his resume, you can't say he's a top ten fighter because of, of the talent he's fighting. You know, Justin Gaethje is an extremely talented fighter, and, and he would probably be the one guy in that roster I would overpay for. But I just, you know, it's things on those lines. But, you know, there's, you know, it's a very small percentage of regional promoters that aren't somehow involved. And I think for the most part, most executive directors know whether, a, a, you know, someone inside a promotion is also a manager. In most cases, I think it's 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 worked out. I'll, I'll give you in my, in my personal experience, I've seen many of... of uh, the, the, the promotions in Russia, especially, for instance, here's a great example for Russia is uh, Fight Nights is uh, Kamil Gaziev, who's, who mm -hmm. runs Fight Nights, happens to manage multiple multiple fighters on the roster, including Ali Ali Bagamotiv, who's not really on their roster anymore. Obviously, he's part of uh, he's part of the UFC, but Rasul Mirzaev and uh, Vladimir Meniv, uh, all those all those fighters, Vitaly Minakov. Those fighters who fight for his promotion, who will get favorable matchups in general, favorable matchups in the sense that they'll get 
No, I mean, they're, they're giving good matchups. A lot of his fighters are given tough fights, and, like, Rasul just lost... Uh, recently so i won't i won't say that he sets them up and is like padding their records necessarily but i mean he's obviously giving them favorable shine on the cards they're always headlining the events etc that's that's an example right there but in russia in russia no one's considering that a big deal no one is saying oh my god how is he doing this and this is terrible and whatnot vadim doesn't manage fighters he used to manage fedor but he doesn't manage any fighters now so that's not the game he plays but there are managers of fighters in M1 who are very close to the staff in general and have a lot of say and like sway in general over over how not how things are run but like favorable favorable uh, position on the fight cards or making sure that your older fighters are put are put on the same fight card instead of the manager having to fly off to multiple events. I've seen stuff like that happen, for instance. So. You, you, when you put it on a relative scale, you have different ones. Like you wouldn't write the same scathing article about the M1 example or the or the Fight Night example as you would about uh, about Ali. Or at least in, in my eyes, again, it could be a bias there. But say say Fight Nights, you start to truly see something happen, or or you see an example that wasn't very good. That's when you start to that's when you start to worry, basically. But that wasn't exactly what happened. Uh, there it's it's a it's a tricky one jason i agree with you it's not something that we can just like uh, easily just confirm as a blanket statement that all of them are always guilty at all times if there's a conflict of interest i mean we've seen it in media as well and sometimes the conflict of interest is severe sometimes it's less severe like i obviously entered my own conflict of interest when i was doing commentary for a promotion in russia luckily for me it's not like doing commentary for the ufc and trying to cover the ufc i tried to cover m1 as little as possible as a matter of fact if i had seen any dirt or had uncovered anything i would have had no absolutely no qualms about publishing those pieces whatsoever it's easy to say now but an example of that is uh, is the conflict of interest story at the end of the day vadim founded all these organizations including the russian mma union and and the ones and the one above it in that regard so the world mma and the world mixed martial arts associations etc he's founded those those entities and i was the person who who had who was uh, was basically flying me to Russia to commentate? I still happily wrote the article and made all the conflicts of interest clear because that's my job. That's what I have to do. I'll live with knowing that there's a conflict of interest. It was p- potentially avoidable, but had I avoided it entirely and never gone to Russia saying that this is a conflict of interest, well, there's a very good chance that all the stories I published wouldn't have come to be. So if someone looks at me and says, "I can't stand you. You're not a good journalist because of your conflict of interest." I'll have to accept it for what it is. But I can rest easy knowing I took a potentially bad thing and turned it into the best opportunity I could. Yeah, and, I mean, it, and, and, and maintained my dignity and like my integrity. I was, you know, somewhat kind of a, a same situation like you did, where you know I got I got approached to to write for Bellator dot com, and, and this was under the Bjorn Rebney era Bellator, and, and did write a little bit under, under Scott Coker. And the reason I say that, you know, for me, why I was fine with it is they never told me what I could and could not write. You know, I mean, yes, you know, you're writing from promotions website, you're doing fighter features and whatnot. Um, but I was never concerned with it never hampered what I was going to report. You know, I was firmly content that, you know what, they don't like reporting and, and I lose a gig. Fine. You know, honestly, I used it as just a way to help promote myself more than anything else. But I understood why people thought it was a conflict of interest. I agree. And we, we have multiple examples in our industry. And it's sometimes things are unavoidable. And not to say that my case was unavoidable or your case was unavoidable. That's not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to judge in that regard. But 
things are not black and white in this world, and, and, and I'm only 25, but as, as every year passes, the more I realize that everything is perspective, everything is subjective, and everything is a shade of gray. There is no such thing as black and white anywhere. So you have to approach things with what you, with what makes you, if you're comfortable looking at yourself in the mirror and you can rest easy every night and wake up without a weight on your chest, then that's good. I know that I got approached by multiple organizations uh, different organizations basically to fly me out as a journalist, and I and I refuse that, and I happily refuse that. One, yeah, multiple, I've, I've never by done that. Multiple times it was by dictators. It was I've had the Chechen warlord himself at one point when he realized I was a Muslim journalist. They wanted me out there for Chechnya, and I thought this was a terrible idea. And uh, multiple other offers in that regard. So it's not going to happen. Like it's just not going to happen. That's those those lines. Sometimes there are lines that you don't cross. Sometimes there are blurred lines. It's very difficult. To, yeah, to I, I've never had travel paid for me. You know, yes. um, you know, I, I've had some opportunities come up in the future here for some play-by-play stuff, but I think that's that's a different a different scenario where someone wants me to come in and be the play-by-play guy. I, you know, it's a totally yeah. different uh, scenario there. But uh, you know, there's I, I think in, in just in general conflicts of interest, it's got to be a case-by-case basis. And you know, and if there is anything wrongdoing, I, I think you know there is part of me that wishes that there had to be some type of it, something where, as a reporter, we would be able to go to the commission and, and find out exactly you know if if there is someone working for that organization that has any vested interest in a fire that might be on that card. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the more, the more we're able to scrutinize that's, that's, that comes back to exactly how important our jobs are. As long as we're able to scrutinize and to scrutinize without us being at risk of our lives or for whatever reason, uh, anything else, our jobs, etc. as long as we're able to scrutinize, well, then you can always guarantee that the media will able to produce which one is a serious case and what isn't a serious case. But you don't allow us to do our jobs, and things are going to be a lot more difficult to do. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, amazing. It's a uh, it's a fascinating industry because there's so many things that happen behind the scenes that never never see the light. You know, I, I can think of stories just off the top of my head that I, I tried to go put out there, and uh, it just ultimately never came to you know came about just because you, you couldn't get anybody to go on the record. But it's. Uh, it, it's a fascinating industry. Of course, we've got the, the UFC on Fox card this weekend. Uh, I'm interested in that main card. Are you? It's an interesting one for me, Jason. I'm not sure, Like to be honest. Uh, I'll tell you what. Especially especially lately, I've been trying to cut back on what on what uh, UFC fights, like uh, what fight cards I'm watching at what times, and whether I'm going to watch an event live. And I'm sure you – I remember you multiple times being on Twitter saying you're not going to be watching a certain event live. Versus another one live, etc. Watching the DVR is great because you get to fast forward through so much stuff. I was just about to say that's exactly. It. I occasionally I'll tune in for a main event and I'll, I'll watch back on my own at my own leisure the following day because I don't really have to do any fight night coverage. So I can't I can't guarantee I'll be watching the event live, but I'm very interested in general in anything to have that has to do with Valentina Shevchenko. Really, like I think she's fantastic in general. Yeah, I uh, I mean like the Bellator card on Friday night there. I don't think I, I think I have other stuff going on anyway, so I wouldn't be watching it live. But uh, you know, the main event should be exciting between Gallard and and Injiquani. The other three fights on the main card are all they're 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 showcase fights. I mean, it, it's what it is. Um, you know, in terms of the belt, uh, the UFC fight card, um, you know, Cerrone Masvidal should be a very exciting fight. Um, right. You know, but you know, I, I definitely as I have 
transitioned into not necessarily doing live coverage for every fight card anymore. I, I kind of basically, I do it for cards that either I have absolutely nothing going on or okay. fight cards I really want to see. Um, and, and sometimes I just like to, you know, go out with some of my, my buddies and just watch the fights. Um, because also going out, it allows you to see kind of the reactions of other people. And because I think we, we live in this bubble where the thing we, we look at MMA in a certain way, but then when you go outside that bubble, you start to see things a little different. Almost entirely different. I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that the Twitter bubble in general is not a realistic depiction of what's going on in MMA in general or what's the casual fan base is thinking in general. I think sometimes when, when, when people in general, and I see writers get so mad and go on their podcasts and say, well, I can't believe people are saying this. What people? First of all, how many people did you speak of to get this sort of like figure that you're coming up with or, or making it seem like such a general statement? So you saw one or two Twitter trolls say an idiotic comment that they said for attention and then you take it seriously? I don't understand. Yeah, it's it, it, people just live in this 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 mindset of uh, you know what you see on Twitter is ultimately the kind of reaction. I'm like, man, just go out and about, and and, and you can really learn about kind of what the what people think of this industry, you know, and, and get in. And I guess with with my ability, you know, I you know during the football season, I, I work for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Radio Network, so I get to be around people that are either fans of MMA or are not fans of MMA. And it also allows me to kind of see who are the draws in MMA. And uh, it's just, I think you have to take yourself out of that bubble, especially if you're an MMA reporter, because I think we, we live so much into social media impressions. How many, how many clicks did an article get? You know, we live in that world. And, you know, I think for a long time, I kind of fell in that bubble where I was so looking at, social media stats and, and web stats. And that's kind of how I developed my opinion. But then as I got, you know, more involved in the sport, I realized you got to look at other things to kind of figure out. And, and sometimes it's going, it's just going to events, you know, and seeing it's, it's kind of like go to a UFC event. Now, how many Reebok fight kits do you see? None. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, back in the day you would see all the, the tap out and, and the affliction shirts and, and things along those lines. And you don't even see those anymore. Oh, you don't, and if you do, it's almost like an, it's an insult, really. Like, I, I, I saw a girl at, at my gym, and she was wearing a Ronda Rousey fight kit. I literally wanted to go up there and start doing an interview with her. You know, funny enough, in Russia, you'll occasionally find, like, Habib fight kits on, on certain people. Like, I've seen a Habib fight kit at M at an M1 event before. That I can say, the, the, Reebok, the Habib Reebok fight kit, I've seen it on maybe a couple of different people at a UFC event, which is really interesting to me. Like, but I guess they want something that has his name on it, and at this point, that's the shirt. But he sells other shirts, too, and there's other shirts you can get. I'm surprised they go for that ugly Reebok one. Yeah, and, and they're so overpriced, too. I mean, that's you know that's that's the thing, and that's where I think Reebok is really screwed up. It's just the the way they, they have priced these things. It's just it's uh, it's unfortunate, I think, at the end of the day, and, and it definitely, I think, hurts the fighter brand. You know, we, we talked about that earlier of, you know, it's, you know, the brand that they have out there. So, uh, I, you know, I think I'll be watching um, the main card live on Saturday. You know, as long as nothing else is going on. It's possible. All I know is I sh I'll be staying up late Saturday for uh, the tennis final, who, which I hope, I hope will be Federer versus Nadal. But by the time I guess this is published, it uh, might be someone else in, in the final. But Wait, is, now it two, is it 2007? 
It is too. I know, isn't it? It's, it's incredible. <laughs> to me, that's incredible. It's 2017, and it's Venus versus Serena Williams in the women's final in the Australian Open, and it's potentially going to be Federer versus Nadal. So I'm doing all nighters the next couple of nights. Uh, it's Jason. Cra- you know, I remember growing up and, and watching tennis. It was like it, it seemed to me that you know, like you think of you know Pete Sampras and some other ones. Like they had like this five six year run. Yep. Then they and then it ended, but now it's uh, you know the, the long runs that the that these players have been on. It's recovering from injuries, and the way they recover from injuries is incredible. It's remember when once the ACL was seen as like the end of the career. Yeah, it's no longer the case. So I think just the advancements in this in the medical and medical the techno medical revolution or whatever we're we're a part of right now, just in general these advancements in uh, in medicine. I think it's doing wonders for athletes because they're the ones who can afford them or have the insurance for them in the first place. Not everyone's going to get injected with stem cells. I'll tell you what, if I could solve all my problems with stem cells, I would. But if we don't have money for that. Yeah, but, you, but you do hear, you know, uh, more, especially in May, you hear fires taking that stem cell route. Mm-hmm. You know, but it, it's, you know, but I do think MMA fires, they, they're a lot smarter in, in how they train. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and just, and, and that's just based on my conversations with fighters saying, you know, Hey, you, you, there's just, there's different ways you do things now, as opposed to what you did uh, a couple of years ago. And, you know, obviously I think the UFC is doing some stuff to kind of help out there as well. By the way, did you see George Sullivan got popped again. Oh my God. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Num- number two, he was scheduled to, f- he was coming off suspension July 31st, was going to fight <laughs> at UFC 208. And you saw it announced today that he's uh, facing another uh, suspension. I, I bet he was thinking he wasn't going to get tested while he was under suspension. <laughs> Man, it's crazy. It, it's always interesting to see, and, and and I don't call myself an expert when it comes to drug testing, but you know, I just try to pick up the phone, talk to executive directors, and try to get the the best information I can get. Uh, you know, because you know that's just the way I learn it. But it, it's interesting to see kind of the various information that is out there on drug testing. I think between like you asked now, you, the way when you ask that question, I guess I see it as a loaded question because I think of the Russian doping scandal overall. I think yeah. of, I think of the problems with WADA right now, and I think of from even from when it was hacked and all the different issues like that. I think of everything Ian Kidd is uh, is writing for for Bloody Elbow about just how bad of a job Usada has been doing and just how hypocritical they've been. In, in their judgment and in their suspensions overall. I mean, Leo Machida's suspension is outrageous. No matter how you slice it, this is not effective drug testing. This is not the way it should be done. We're almost entering this sort of war on drugs, but it's war on doping phase. And from experience, we know history has told us the war on drugs did not work. What yeah, makes the, what am I? One of my problems with USADA, A, is the agreement that fighters have to sign and basically saying that, hey, if we screw up, you can't sue us. Um, exactly. that's, that's, that's ridiculous. And, and that's a thing that could have been agreed on with a union, but uh, it could have been mm-hmm. negotiated with a union, but of course they don't have a union. And, and there were management companies that were telling their fighters not to sign that because it was basically like, hey, you know, this, this could screw you up. The other thing I hate is I don't know why USADA decides it's 6 a.m., go knock on a fighter's uh, you know, door. And I remember I was talking to Bilal Muhammad. This was probably about three or four months ago. He, he's telling me, he goes, he goes, I get woke up at 6.30. Guy there from USADA, he goes, cool, you know what, I was sleeping, you know. He goes, so I'm at, I'm at practice. He goes, it's like 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, and the same USADA guy is in the gym taking samples of every USC fires. I go up to him and go, uh, you couldn't wait a couple hours? You had to wake me up? 
You know, and that's and, and you hear I'm like, at what point? I mean, what was it? Jake Ellenberger who, who pointed a gun at the USADA guy because he thought someone was trying to break into his house. <laughs> I was waiting for one of those stories to come up. I can't remember who I had said this to. I'm like, someone's going to get hurt one day. And I think I was speaking in reference to Russia. Now, imagine trying to wake up someone in Dagestan at six in the morning with a big smile on your face as this white guy. <laughs> like, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> someone's going to get hurt one day. And Jake Ellenberger was just like the tip of the iceberg in that regard. But yeah, the testing is bizarre. And I, I, the early time is, is weird because I remember, and I don't know if it's this invasive in other sports, but I can say that I remember an example of Andy Murray. Andy Murray is uh, the number yeah. one player in the world in tennis right now. And he was on holiday after a Wimbledon win or the U.S. Open win. This was multiple years ago here. And uh, he was on holiday, and I think he was at the beach when, 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 they, when they found him. And they came and uh, like, basically drug tested, drug tested him there. He was there with his fiance, now wife. And he was just on the beach enjoying himself, and that's where they found him. Because, of course, they have to, like, be, they have to alert uh, doping officials of, of their whereabouts at all times. So that whereabout policy, and etc., applies to other sports, especially other sports that WADA or, or USADA have their hands on. Uh, so I don't know if the UFC is very different in that regard. I honestly, I honestly do not know enough about it to, to, to press further. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's you know the whereabout policy thing is one of those things that, um, you know they can't tell you where where you can and can't go. First off, you know, and I've had multiple managers tell me that that they told their fighters go look, put put in where you're going, but it's not like they can sit there and say, oh no, you can't go there because we don't have a lab there. They they can't dictate your life, but um, you know, I I do hope that the UFC. It would at least when they start to redo this deal, and, and I think that it will be redone at some point, that the fighters do have some kind of say. But uh, it's um, it, at least I, I think you know. Hey, look, I'm all for more drug testing. I, I think it's great that it's happening, but there's also a right way to do it. I agree, but I think. And just in general here, I think it's going to be wishful thinking on anyone's part if we think that this new management is going to be fighter-friendly in any way, shape, or form. We're talking about Hollywood power brokers, really powerful individuals here. Ari Emanuel, I mean, I really implore anyone to go read up on him because it's it's really – it's you got to respect the, the this man's uh, life in general and who – and just his brother's life as well, Rahm Emanuel, who was Obama's chief of staff for a while and now is mayor of Chicago. These are really powerful, really uh -huh. smart individuals. They are not going to succumb to just emotions like that, that, oh, we, you, we owe you something? No, we don't. You've got to fight us like we fought for everything and all the businesses we've come and we've taken over and we've won. They fought hard. They fought dirty. This is not the UFC fighters can't just sit there with their hands together and pray to God that someone's going to pay for them or that things are going to change. You don't unite, nothing changes. And quite frankly, it's not the media's responsibility to continuously repeat this point. We're not activists. We've done our job and our job is to continuously find the information and put it out there. We do that, but we can't keep telling fighters that they have to, they have to uh, unite or, or organize. That's on them. That's 100% on them. They don't want to organize. That's their problem. We At this point, we have to organize into ourselves. As writers, we are missing out. When some of us are being intimidated that others aren't, as a unified group, we can stop something like that. That's something we should be working towards, you know what I mean? But I can't fight someone else's battle. I'm here to fight my own battle. Mm -hmm. No, it's totally well said, and I, and I do think I, you know there seems to be, and I think with with the stuff that happened with Ariel or with the UFC, I, I did seem, seem to think that there was definitely a push for maybe 
uh, you know, MMA reporters that kind of band together, but only time's going to tell on that one. But Kareem, uh, great stuff over here over the last two hours. I really appreciate the time. Uh, let everyone know where they can follow you at on social media. On social media, you can basically follow all my work by following my Twitter account at Zidan Sports, at Z-I-D-A-N Sports. And basically all my content, whether it be for Bloody Elbow, Open Democracy, Vocative, soon it will be Bleach Report and CNN, etc. All your all that content will be available from there. And I also would love people to follow and to check out my new website, Sports Politica, which is dedicated specifically to the intersection of sports and politics. It's all independent journalism. And yes, I would appreciate people checking that out and getting feedback for that. And Jason, thank you so much for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. I rarely get to have these such great discussions, and it's great to talk with another mind I respect so much in the industry. Oh, I appreciate you coming on here. Of course, the MMA Insiders podcast is available on RadioInfluence.com. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Just search the MMA Insiders. Stay tuned to the MMA Insiders Twitter account, which is at MMA Insiders PC, to find out who will be my next guest here on the podcast. And be sure to check out my sponsor, Fight TV. Uh, they do have some MMA coming up this week. Hard Knocks 53 on Friday night is available via, via paywall. So be sure to check out my friends over there at Fight TV. So that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast, which you always hear on RadioInfluence.com. Hey, guys and gals. This is Ian Beckles. You may know me from my nine seasons in the NFL or listen to me on sports radio for years. But now you get a chance to hear the real me, the uncensored and unfiltered me on my new podcast, The Ian Beckles Show. You might be wondering what The Ian Beckles Show is all about. It's about great adventures, great guests, food, drink, a lot of sports, and all the things that are happening in my life. And did I mention food? Make sure to check out The Ian Beckles Show each Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.